燃え上がれガンダムスー。Um, because we're going to talk about the cinematic adaptation of episode 15 of Mobile Suit Gundam, a thing when we started this podcast, I never thought I would ever say.、Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about the movie Cuckoo's Doan's Island、um, that came out in June 3rd in、uh, Japan and obviously has sort of like trickled around the internet in different ways and, and Blu rays have been imported and things like that.、Uh, but this is a brand new Gundam movie based on some very old Gundam. Yep. I have the Blu ray box set in front of me that is being sold. You have to be at, in Japan, you have to go to a Japanese movie theater, and you have to have a movie ticket to buy these.、Uh, or you can get them on eBay from people who bought them for you.、Uh, so I spent. This is the most expensive episode of Weekly Suit Gundam because I spent about $180 <laughs> on、Good、this、Lord. fucking box.、Uh, worth it. I'll tell you about it in a little bit. Both because I love the movie and because the box is really cool.、Uh, not, I mean, the box itself, but what's in it is cool. So、yeah. we will talk about that.、Um, but yeah, this is going to be the last Weekly Suit Gundam, not forever, but for a little while, because we are、uh, evolving this channel and platform into Japanimation Station, which you have hopefully heard about already. Do you want to tell the kids about that, Sean? Yeah, so if you haven't finished listening to the end of last week's episode of Weekly Suit Gundam,、um, which is when we sort of officially announced this, we are turning Weekly Suit Gundam effectively into Japanimation Station. Like, Weekly Suit Gundam will exist as an occasional, you know, title effectively that we'll bring out when it's time to do more Gundam stuff.、Um, but we wanted to make sure that、uh, we could continue to talk about anime in the way that we've done on Weekly Suit Gundam.、Uh, so we've made Japanimation Station, which will start August 1st. Um, and it's the same basic format as Weekly Suit Gundam.、Uh, it'll be the same kind of deep dive,、um, contextualized, you know, looking at the history and the behind the scenes stuff and all of that, and then picking kind of big topics and moving through it very like, thoroughly and holistically、um, in the same way that we've done with Gundam. You know, we're not doing like, let's do an hour podcast on every single episode of a TV show, but really looking at like the big picture stuff. Um, and, and that kind of more thoroughly academic kind of approach that we do here.、Um, but the only difference with, between Weekly Zoo Gundam and Japanimation Station is Japanimation Station can be about any anime stuff we want it to be about,、um, including the first topic, which is going to be Full Metal Alchemist,、uh, the, starting with the original TV show adaptation from 2003,、um, and then moving on to the Brotherhood stuff.、Um, so 
very, very excited. We've been hard at work on the behind the scenes stuff, kind of kicking into this new era or phase of the podcast uh, that I think yes. people really like. Yeah, and I, I'll just tell people the so the YouTube channel Weekly Suit Gundam will be turning into Japanimation Station, and my plan is to sort of make that switch over this coming Friday. Uh, that'll be Friday, July 22nd, and on that same day, you're going to get a very special preview where you are going to see the th original theme song for Japanimation Station that we have made as a big group effort here with Sean, me, and my brother Thomas, who is a composer, uh, and a, a friend of ours named Hatsune Miku. And yes. uh, you are going to get to see that and hear that theme song for the first time on Friday with a little conversation from us as a... There's already a trailer for Japanimation Station up. There's going to be another one with the theme song. And uh, then the full show will start on August 1st. Um, but that is why Weekly Suit Gundam... It'll come back for Witch from Mercury. And we've got the G-Reco movies. Uh, all sorts of stuff for Weekly Suit Gundam not dying or anything. But uh, evolving as a sort of more regular thing into Japanimation Station. There you go. Yeah. So again, if you like uh, Weekly Suit Gundam, like we're just like continuing what this podcast is into Japanimation Station. And if you want to follow along with that and you haven't watched Full Metal Alchemist or you you uh, want to rewatch it, uh, I would recommend starting now because it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot of anime to watch um, because we're we're watching it behind the scenes so we can get onto that as soon as we can once the podcast launches. Yep, absolutely. So coming August first, but today, Sean, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves because we yes. do have. One uh, last big piece of Gundam to talk about here, and it is such a treat, and it is such a pleasure to have this, I think, as like our little kind of like break moment, because this is the Kukuru's Doan's Island movie directed by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, the original character designer and animation supervisor of the original Gundam, come back around for um, what very much feels like watching the movie One Last Gundam Rodeo, and... Uh, I, I guess we should start, you know, not everyone has probably seen this movie yet. We'll have spoilers later on. But do you want to just give our quick spoiler-free impressions of the film? Yeah. Um, I think it's fantastic. Uh, it is, it's a, it's like a weird movie in some way. Just like conceptually, it yeah. is a weird movie, right? <laughs> I mean, obviously you'd need to be a, a Gundam fan, and specifically a fan of First Gundam, and ideally someone who has read the origin manga. Like, that is like the ideal pathway to this movie. Um, obviously, if you you don't need to have done all of that, but you need to have a pretty you know healthy familiarity with the characters in the world and all of that of original Gundam to get into Cuckoo's Doan's Island because it is it is what it kind of says on the box, which it is a movie version of like a bottle episode from the original show, and it's got I think so much of the same kind of heart and style and approach of classic Gundam. Um, the kind of stuff you see if you read the origin manga, which adapts, you know, the the like all the adventures of White Base and Amaro and stuff, which is not really stuff you see in the stuff that they did for the OVAs, which is Char's backstory. Um, but it has that kind of flair and energy to it. Um, but it is also a like very, I think, reflective movie. Um, it feels kind of like in a weird way, it feels like a movie you can put into like next to a lot of the kind of retro revival stuff that we have these days um, that we get a lot, particularly in live action, um, but also in anime. It is a movie I think you could very comfortably sit next to if a double feature with the fourth Evangelion movie, yes. which I think shares a lot in common with this in terms of a lot of like the theme uh, and style of it. Um, but it, it feels like it's a lot of people, older people looking back on their work and their history and telling a story um, like through a lot of those feelings 
uh, and and I think it's extremely touching and effective while being a fairly small scale like kind of humble movie it's not you know it doesn't have the biggest stakes in the world they 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 up the stakes more from what the original tv show is um but it is mostly a movie about Amro hanging out on this island and learning the lessons he needs to learn from these kids and from Doan um and it's it's really it's really great yeah I've seen the movie a couple of times now and I think it's beautiful I think it is like beautiful in its creation it's a gorgeous animated movie I think it's got the nicest backgrounds in any piece of Gundam. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that more later. Um, but, you know, character animation and everything is just gorgeous. It really, I think it captures Yasuhiko's style better than the Origin OVA, uh, even, uh, which did a good job at that. I think this does a great job at it. And some of that is that he's more hands-on with this. He directed it. He did the storyboards. There's a lot of pieces he worked on that he wouldn't have done on the, on the OVA directly. Um, and... You know, and then everything you said, I totally agree with. The connection with the fourth Eva movie is the first thing I tweeted when I saw this film because it's um, pretty obvious, I think, when you see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's just it's as you say, it's it's humble and it's small, but it also it feels big and vast in the sense that it is these artists, and I would include like Toru Furia in that, you know, as, yeah. as a voice actor looking back on work that made their careers forty some years ago. And kind of saying goodbye to it. There's, I have choked up at the end of this movie both times I've seen it. Because the, the final scene, um, which involves the, the white base flying through the air. The way that is sh- like animated and composed and scored and edited feels like a farewell to Gundam in some way. It kind of feels like a team kind of saying... Like, Gundam is continuing, obviously. We have Witch from Mercury coming in a couple months. But, like, first Gundam, at least, there's some... There's feels like there's a little bit of a letting go um, that is very lovely. And also, I think, dovetails nicely with where we're kind of putting it on the podcast right now. So, yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, I, I, I agree with, with that. Yeah, it was like... Yeah. I think I had a fairly similar reaction to the end of it. Yeah. Um, before we get into the movie, I did just want to say the way this is being distributed. So it's out in Japan in theaters. Well, it's probably left theaters by now, but it came out in Japan in theaters in June. Uh, and they did this. They did this with Hathaway last year as well, where they're just selling the Blu-ray in theaters, not as a general thing. You have to go to the movie theater and buy a ticket to the movie, and then they will let you buy the Blu-ray. And there's a standard Blu-ray, and then there is what I got, which is this giant fucking crazy box, which has an illustration on it by uh, Tsukasa Kotobuki, who is one of the character designers on the film um, and animation leads. And then inside the box, you get a bunch of crazy shit. You get the movie itself with an original illustration by Yasuhiko as like the slip cover. So that's nice. It's a Blu-ray. It's a good Blu-ray. You get uh, a bonus disc set with more original art by another one of the character designers uh, that has a bonus disc. The bonus disc Blu-ray has uh, the like press... This is a common thing you get on Japanese discs. You get Mm -hmm. the press conference like about the film with all the people talking about it. And then the entire script of the movie you can flip through on the Blu-ray and read the entire shooting script if you want to read that. Then there's also the original soundtrack CD. I was listening to that this morning to get ready for the podcast. There is a uh, 16-page booklet in the Blu-ray. There is a like 40-page book that it comes with that is the key animation book, which is a real fucking treat. It's basically just 
big enlargements of keyframes from the movie that you can look at like the drawings and they're very beautiful as you would imagine and then the piece de resistance is a 600 page storyboard book which is the entire storyboards for the film uh, as drawn primarily by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko um, the other storyboard artist um, is uh, Im Gahi um, I'm actually I've seen her name print like spelled a million different ways she is a South Korean artist um, in katakana it's just imu gahi i've seen it as lim gahi i've seen it as im kahi so i'm not entirely sure how how to say it in like its proper korean but that's how it's spelled and she is the assistant director on the movie um and i i know it's a she just because i was listening to the audio commentary a little bit and she's on there so anyway um but yeah the storyboard book i actually spent some time this morning looking through it and it's fun because it is mostly yasuhiko drew it and his like we talked about this with reviewing the manga that he did the Gundam the Origin manga he's so phenomenally good at drawing characters where you get so much of the character through just a little bit of line work and even in the storyboards which are fairly like sparse for storyboards from some of I've seen uh you still get that throughout you get like a, the entire Amuro performance just reading it it's a lot of fun so anyway that is the uh crazy edition of this movie that I got just for posterity's sake uh and I'm actually glad I you know it was a stupid amount of money but hey i've done stupider uh-huh. things why not it's fun you know it's a it's it's a cool thing to get you know for, yeah i mean it it sounds like it is like worth it you know if it's not it's not just like you know they didn't just jack up the price on a normal blu-ray with like normal set of extras no. like that's a pretty extravagant box set with a lot more in it than you would normally get i mean you know japan is a lot more uh, extravagant with a lot of its home video releases than you yes. usually get over here particularly these days um but that's that's exceptional even for the standards by what you would normally get buying a blu-ray over there the thing that pushed me over the top is the storyboard book because i actually collect these to begin with i have a bunch of the ghibli ones i've gotten some pieces of these elsewhere and i just love those i think you can find really fun things going through them i have a couple of little tidbits for this movie that i found reading through it um and you know it's it's just a cool record of the production and I, they will, there will be a general on-sale version of this at some point that you'll be able to get from Amazon Japan for cheaper. But if it's anything like Hathaway, it probably will not include all of this because Hathaway in theaters, its big crazy extra is it gave you the Hathaway's Flash book one and then an entire audiobook read by Ono Kensho of that book. And that was the thing they gave you with that one. And that did not go in uh, the general on-sale edition that they did a few months later. Um, which I have and is a nice addition, but wasn't that lavish. So I kind of wanted to get this now because, you know, I actually use these in my research sometimes. So, mm-hmm. you know, all sorts of ways I can justify it. The main thing to justify it was I want it. But there yes. you go. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. I'm, 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 I am both jealous and then also not because I don't want to spend that amount of money, but I want to have it. Uh. <laughs> That's fine. Um, but Sean, do you want to start with sort of whatever backstory we have to talk about this movie? Yeah, like there's not, it's not a particularly elaborate uh, story of how it came to uh, production. And this is like a, I believe this is a first in Weekly Suit Gundam where we are talking now about a thing that was announced, that was like announced, made, and released over the course of the podcast lifespan to the point where we have talked about, we talked about it when it was announced. um, Yes. Because it was like that time when they announced like the Gundam Seed movie and a bunch of other um, projects. Um, And this was one of those. Um, And what they said at that announcement is kind of like basically what the main story is of this uh, movie and its production is that fundamentally it is made 
because Yoshikazu Yasuhiko wanted to make it. Um, basically, you know, he did, you know, uh, the origin manga. Then he came back to direct and do work on the origin OVAs. Um, and after that, he wanted to do one more project. And basically, he saw the manga version of Cuckoo's Doan's Island. If people don't know, um, I think we've mentioned it on the podcast when we did the origin stuff. Um, but basically, uh, there is a manga version of Cuckoo's Doan's Island that is not done by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko. It's done by a mangaka named... Oh, I had it pulled up and now I can't find it. Um, it was done by another mangaka. I'll pull up the name. I'll find it in just a second. Um, and he saw that manga and sort of was inspired by it to do a project. The manga is Ono Junji. Uh, that's who it is. Um, that is done somewhat in the style of origin. So he saw that manga and was kind of inspired by it. This is not an adaptation of that manga. I haven't read the manga, but he has said he didn't adapt it. It was more like it served as a source of inspiration for him to do his own version of Cuckoo's Doan's Island. Um, and so that spark of inspiration is what he took to Sunrise and said, hey, I want to do the movie. And they were like, rad, sure, <laughs> like, let's do it, you know, because they know Yoshikazu Yasuhiko has such a huge reputation and the origin and all that was so successful um, that they're like, yeah, we'll have, we'll let you do the movie. And, and I mean, the turnaround and everything on this movie was pretty quick overall, because it was only announced a couple of years ago. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's most of the story. Uh, you know, they got Tony Furia back, obviously, to play Amuro. Um, they got Furukawa-san back to play Kai. Um, other than that, almost everybody is a recast, which is one of the things about it that feels like it's probably time to leave First Gundam behind because it's like you've only got two actors from the original kind of left. Um, I mean, obviously, Yuji Kata makes a brief vocal cameo, um, but Shar is not really in this story. Um, and, and the other characters, it is people who we've... It's not all new recasts, like Sela. Yes is Megumi Hotton from The Origin, and you have uh, Ken Narita playing Bright. He's done that yeah. for years. Um, but yes, there is, there's a lot of people who are replacing actors who have died or moved on with their careers. Um, yeah, only a couple of original voices here. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then, like, the rest of the production staff is mostly people who are from um, Origin. Like, it's a very broadly similar um, production team. The music is Takeyuki Hattori, who did the music for Origin, the script was written by Toshizo Nemoto, who does not on um, Origin, but he has done a lot of other stuff. He did some of the scripts for Iron Blood Orphans. He's just worked on like a shit ton of shows. Um, like some of it is a lot of it is stuff that I haven't seen, but he did like Log Horizon, which is a very good uh, isekai show. He did a lot of scripts for Duda Dada, which is an amazing show and particularly well written. Um, so yeah, it's like it's it's a lot of like Sunrise people. They brought together a lot of. Uh, origin people they brought together to do this kind of one last hurrah. And Yusukazu Yasuhiko has said multiple times that this is his last, like, at least like last movie or anything he's going to do in the world of Gundam. I think he specifically used the word Azo, which refers to video. Um, so that technically what he said leaves open a gap that like if he wants to do a manga it wouldn't be going against what he said. Um, but this feels like it's him saying like this is me kind of putting my mark in, in my last mark and kind of walking away from from Gundam and Todu Fudia has said in a lot of like the stuff leading up to this movie in the press that obviously he's going to continue to voice Amuro in the games and all that kind of stuff which he has been doing continuously for like 40 years um, but this is almost certainly going to be the last time he plays Amuro especially like young Amuro 
for a big animated project like this because what other opportunity i mean you wouldn't have expected this to have happened in the first place so what other opportunity would come around that would involve that um and so like my impression has been that that Todifudia was like pretty heavily involved in a lot of like the talks around Amuro and how he was used in the movie and in all that kind of stuff as well um just based on all the interviews I've read with him and Yusukazu Yasuhiko in them together yeah. uh and that's the stuff that makes this feel like it is that kind of like legacy sequel thing we get a lot these days but in a very interesting way because obviously while it is in a much older Todifudia playing Amuro Amuro is still just a 15 year old boy in this film um and he is he is sometimes in some ways he's even more of a 15 year old boy in this film than he was in the original tv show um so it is not you know it's not a top gun maverick thing or something like that of where it is the character has aged on screen and you're reflecting on that but the creators have aged and their perspective has aged and the style has changed and all of the rest of that in your own like everybody's relationship to Gundam turns this into this interesting sort of pseudo legacy sequel alongside a lot of the other kinds of movies we get these days well then maybe that's a good transition into talking about the movie itself because yeah. I think that's absolutely right it is a it is a weird thing right like <laughs> and I think intentionally the movie kind of lampshades its weirdness because it opens with that little text box that says this film is a remake of the 15th episode of Mobile Suit Gundam, which aired in 1979. And it is and it isn't. You know, it is this... Because it's kind of funny. It it takes some big pieces from that episode, which I did rewatch yesterday to refresh my memory on it. And it takes some of the key moments from that. It expands on a lot of it. It specifically is placed in the timeline of the origin manga. Yeah. So if you've read the origin manga, where this happens is right before the Odessa operation, which in the manga happens at the end of the entire Earth adventure. And after that, they go into space. And Makuve is there for the whole Odessa Day thing and all of that. So that's where it is placed here. That also means that Ryu is dead at this point in the story. Ryu is probably the character from White Base who is in the episode most b besides Amuro. Um, and then, of course, he is not in the movie. Kind of make up for that. We get Slegger Law, who is here in the manga at this point, and they kind of beef up the roles of other characters like Kai and and those people. Um, we get a little more Sela and Fraubo and stuff like that. Um, and so it is like a basically like an animated add-on to the origin manga. But of course, it is also heavily borrowing from the TV show and the original movies. The Hattori score works in a bunch of the classical music from, um, not classical music, the classic music from Mobile Suit Gundam in really stirring, beautiful ways. The animation harkens back to it in several key moments. Um, you have Yasuhiko's character designs, which are revised from what they were in 1979, but it's all Yasuhiko, so it still obviously exudes that kind of feeling. Um, it's a really interesting product, I think, in that way. And I love, despite all of that, for me at least, I got into it so easily. There's no, like... Because I don't think it's trying to overthink what it is or its position. It really kind of lives in the moment of this story. And it is both the past and the future and the present. And time is just a very kind of weird but wonderful thing in this movie. Because it is elegaic and reflective but it is also forward-looking because it's smack dab in the middle of a story where Amuro's biggest character moments have yet to come, you know? Yeah, and it's, it is interesting because, as you say, it is very easy to sort of, if you wanted to, fit this directly into the origin manga and see it. Like, where Amuro's character is broadly feels like it's, like, 
what you see in the origin manga because again that with how like things have been moved around a lot of his biggest stuff hasn't happened yet but you get direct references here to like uh homecoming right and, and his mom and that kind of stuff but this is pre Rama Rao for him um and so it, it, it's interesting kind of you can fit it into that origin manga stuff but i agree with you that it feels like the movie does enough work on its own that as long as you have a fundamental understanding of first gundam and you know these characters and you know the events of, of all of that stuff the specifics of that timeline aren't particularly important because it, it all you need is that fundamental understanding and then the movie gives you enough key clues immediately to place each character into the proper place of like okay this is this version of Kai or where he is at this is where Amuro is at in his character development this is where Bright is at in his character development um it lets you sort of place and center all those characters appropriately um before you end up going off to the island yeah and you know I think the central thing it ta I, I feel like the episode Kukuru's Doan's Island is this itch that has never fully been scratched for the people uh -huh. who made Gundam, right? And Tomino reacted to that episode by, like, disavowing it, right? And he yeah. has worked pretty hard to make sure it's never left the island nation of Japan. Of course it has, but not officially or legally, right? Um, you know, kind of kept it at, at bay there. You know, when I was re-watching it yesterday... It, it, and we said this way back in, like, Weekly Suit Gundam episode 2 or 3 would have been when we talked about that episode, yeah. right? It's yeah. the worst episode of First Gundam, but it's not a bad episode of First Gundam. It has a lot of wonderful stuff in it, and I think the central idea of a Xeon officer who left the military to protect these kids whose parents he accidentally killed and has disavowed war but will fight to protect these children is a great idea for a story that episode is just the one where you can feel the production crunch of First Gundam most clearly. When I rewatched it yesterday, I mean, Amuro is off-model in, like, every shot of that episode. The Gundam is basically never on-model. Kukuru's Doan himself is a striking character design that looks goofy throughout because of how it's drawn. It's just an episode that feels like it didn't get finished, you know? Yeah, I mean, so you, Jonathan, you shared with me some screenshots from your collection where they're like booklets or whatever that had some yeah. interviews and stuff. And one of them was a, a summary written of like, basically, what the fuck is this movie? Like, wh what is a Kruger's Doan? <laughs> um, uh, and it goes through a little bit of like the broad st strokes of that production history. And like a big part of it is that for those kinds of bottle episodes, typically what they did is they, they outsourced the like actual animation side of it. Um, in order to like be able to manage the production of it so like they would get someone who was usually a more kind of junior member of as like a director and a writer and stuff and they would be kind of in charge of it and then they would they would outsource the animation side of it to another studio and and cougars doan's island is like just one of those episodes that's infamous for what they got back was not good and and there was nothing you could do about it at that point because it was like your the timeline is too strict you don't have like the time or money or anything to go back and like reanimate that episode and it's like you just gotta air it um and it's like full shit you know that it is what it is um it's not the worst animated episode i've ever seen like eventually one day we'll do uh super dimension fortress macross and we'll get to talk about the the most disastrously poorly animated thing ever put on tv um <laughs> which is an episode of super dimension fortress macross 
um for like a lot of like crazy production reasons but anyways like so there's a that happened a lot in this era where you were having you know shows that were trying to air a new episode every week for an entire year like that's a crazy production thing that anime almost never even does these days they've moved so far away from that model because of how unreasonable it is as a production design and like consideration um and yeah cougars doan's island is one of those where i think the core idea of it is solid and it's a fun episode and it's an exceptionally memorable episode everybody remembers cougars doan's island because it's so different from everything else in gundam it's got such a distinctive premise um yeah. but it is just that like yeah the the actual result of the production is so kind of comical in places in in unintentional ways that it kind of kills the thing um but because it is this really memorable thing it feels both insane but also very appropriate that this is the thing that ends up getting a movie you know like you can't imagine um like time be still the the one with all the time bombs that the Xeon soldiers put on the Gundam which is an amazing episode but that's not episodes not going to be turned into a movie um it doesn't have like the the like broad ambitious like scope of imagination that Cougars Doan's Island has to imagine this much bigger premise that it can't, couldn't really execute on at the time um, right so it, feels it feels right that this movie got made in some weird fucking crazy way well because that's what i was going to say when you watch it what is so fascinating is there is something fundamentally unfinished about it and i think part of it is that it opens up these ideas about like community during war you know what a soldier's duty is what like you know a separate like kind of vision for Amuro and his own life he sees in Doan all these things are kind of opened up by that episode that it doesn't fully explore that episode builds to a moment that is so fucking good that this movie does it verbatim just a little yeah. bit better and that is the final sort of big line of the movie from Amuro which I feel like kind of feels like the reason this movie exists is to justify that line and like make a movie about it and that is Jonathan I'll say that is exactly why this movie exists that is yeah. what in, in Yoshikazu Yasuhiko's interview from one of those screenshots you shared with me that is what he says effectively is like yeah. he, he was inspired by that moment and especially looking he was inspired by the manga to have the idea for it he looked back at the episode and saw that moment and was so struck by it and the complexity of the themes and the ideas presented by like is it right to have strength what do you empower in like military might what do you invite by having that um like what is the right thing to do here in this kind of complex scenario and that is effectively why the movie was made is because of he was so struck by that ending which is why he kept it preserved almost identically it's just like the context around it has been radically transformed yeah it's a it's a we're going to talk about it later it is a beautiful line of dialogue in japanese especially but even in translation um and it is haunting and it is i think one of toru furia's best line readings of his fucking lifetime in this movie um which is a thing to say about an actor that good but it's true and i do think like you know if tomino's kind of way of dealing with this episode has been we're gonna pretend this thing doesn't exist i think it's interesting that yasuhiko has gone in the other direction and like seen this opening in it of like well let's do it again and let's bring out the and i think it's you playing with ideas that i don't think they could have realized in 1979 i don't think they were yeah. probably the because it is this is this fundamentally cuckoo's doan's island the movie is an old man's movie i feel like that yes. in its bones it feels like a, a older filmmaker or artist looking back at the world with older eyes i you know the same way i see like 
the last Evangelion movie for Anno, uh, who isn't this old, but, you know, older. Um, I think Miyazaki Hayao's latest uh, movie, The Wind Rises, and probably how his next movie will feel when that comes out. Um, it's just that Isao Takahata's Tale of the Princess Kaguya, uh, I think, has a, there's a lot of similarities. Just there is something both, you know, elegaic and wise and forward-looking and, and this weird mishmash of things that makes it very special. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just to talking about like diving into the meat of the movie. And, and honestly, I think the first thing I want to talk about is another tidbit I picked up from that interview you shared with me, Jonathan, um, where Yoshikazi Yasuhiko talks about um, the the question was basically like, what is a th one of the things in the movie that like you really want you're really proud of that you want people to sort of like take note of. Um, and he talked about like the island itself and that being a thing that they really spent a lot of time and attention and care in presenting the island and the geography of the island, the life on that island and all of that. And in that, I learned something that I had no idea about. I don't know if you knew this, Jonathan, that the island Alagranza that this is set on is a real island. Um, I didn't. So I actually hadn't looked that up. It makes sense because they do the same thing you get in the manga where they really clearly place it geographically. They say it's the top island in the Canary Islands and they like give you that in the movie. So yeah, you're, you're showing me the Wikipedia page here and it is near Las Palmas, which is where the movie starts. They show a military base there and that's where the movie begins. So that's really yeah. cool. And it's, it's the thing that's crazy about it when you look at it is like the island. So it's, I mean, if you watch the movie, it has the exact geography of what the actual island is. Um, yeah. And including the big crazy crater on it, which is the thing that like, I was like, I can't believe this island. Like, and it's what you just Kazuyasiko says in the interview. He's like, we couldn't fucking believe that we found this island, <laughs> that it is so perfect like it yes. it doesn't look like it's supposed to really exist it looks like it's supposed to be the set from like a big movie or something like this um and and the crater itself is such a dramatic geographic feature um that then like imagining the zeons putting a like missile silo underneath the crater and it opening up is such a fascinating idea and it and the geography of the island is so fundamental to everything that happens like the action on it it's so considered how the geography plays into that um the distance of everything is like remarked upon and carefully like sort of examined amro repeatedly is sort of like trying to orient himself and i love that um is such a cool way to show amro's sort of like intelligence is he's able to use landmarks and close his eyes and thinks okay i saw that where did I see that before? From what angle? It's like, I saw an aerial view of this island. So where is this mountain? Where is, like, where would I have fallen? And him trying to navigate the island by landmarks. There's just such thoughtful consideration of the geography and the space that the movie is set in. Um, that it really feels like you have you you feel like you have been to this island, which is why when I saw the actual picture of the island, I like my mind was blown because it's like I can't believe that place exists. Like you could, act, I mean, it's a deserted island. I assume you could go there. Um, I don't know how you would get there. Um, but like it, it, it's it's weird to me that this is a place that you could actually go visit and be like, I'm on Cuckoo's Doan's Island. Even the lighthouse is like a real lighthouse and all that stuff is like totally real. It's the Punta Delgada Lighthouse, which was yeah. built in 1861. I think it says here, yeah, 1861. And it was designated a historic monument in 2002. That's fucking crazy. I would not yeah. have, because I, 
knew they had placed it in the Canary Islands and like the the geography was real. I did not realize, Sean, that the fucking island is real because it feels like it came out of the imagination because it is so yeah. considered for the movie. And like, yeah, the it's it is uh, maybe a little passe to say this, but the island is a character. Like the island yeah. is a character in the movie. The movie is called Cuckoo's Doan's Island, and I feel like they took the island part of it very seriously to make that space real you know in the episode of the show it's just it's a nondescript island that you mostly just see the beach of right mm-hmm. um and in this movie you go all over the island you really learn the geography you learn the landmarks you learn about the land you know it's a plot point that oh there was a volcano here and there's ash under the soil and we can farm in it and that's why we're using the hoe and we're like getting rid of the dirt because then we're using the soil underneath that because it is viable and just yeah, that sense of place is so important to the movie. And it's very, it feels like kind of a culmination of a lot of the stuff in the origin manga, where something I love about that manga is its sense of place. Everything on Earth happens somewhere real. I think you and I both said the best use of that is that um, all the Garma stuff happens in Hollywood. You know, Garma yes. is literally in the fucking Beverly Hills. And it's so silly, but it's so perfect for Garma and for the Zeons. But I think this is maybe the best use of just place that Yasuhiko has created in the entire Origin project because the place is what's so important. It is literally about humans, you know, being, you know, in a relationship with the earth and the space around them and the significance and importance of that. You know, in this case, it's about the specifics of being in the middle of this war that has torn the fucking land apart and there's this one little patch that is theirs and they are taking care of and they are living off of um but you know it is it's it's obviously extends to i think apocalypse and drought and climate change and all sorts of things more generally yes yeah it definitely has a a like vaguely post-apocalyptic kind of quality to which which first gundam always has right because this is a world in which half the earth's population has been killed by the colony drop and you know climate change is imminent because of everything that's going on um and yeah so this i think like really puts a kind of like fine point on it even though it is set on an like the actual island is fairly desolate right um and so it's it's the island it is not that location has not been made post-apocalyptic but it just sort of visually represents that feel um and that really dynamic dramatic sort of contrast in the geography i think one of the things that's so effective about it of having this big kind of like plain area leading up to the beach where you have the lighthouse and that kind of lighthouse beach area is where everybody lives but you have this massive like ominous crater that looks over all of that and underneath the surface of that is where the nuclear weapons are underneath the surface of that is where all the mobile suits have been hidden that's like where Amuro has to go to get his Gundam back it's such a good thematic use of space um to sort of suggest you know like the psychic reality of what is happening here and that these like kind of violent um destructive things are being hidden and suppressed under the surface and it's like bubbling up in the form of this ancient volcanic crater that is no matter what you do overshadows everything of like the lives of these children even if they're totally ignorant of it and just the the raw visual symbolism of that is such an incredible use of geography and space in a movie especially when it is not a use of geography or space that has just been invented but has been borrowed by an actual real world location is it is like legitimately one of the best uses of 
geography I think I've ever seen in a film. It's amazing. I mean, we talk about all the time. You know, last week we were reviewing Thor Love and Thunder on the Weekly Stuff podcast. And, like, that movie's just holistic inability to ever build a convincing location that you Mm -hmm. exist in. But that is a broader problem that Marvel movies have and Hollywood generally just does terribly with. And, you know, animated movies on one level have a leg up on that because they have to invent it all. So more thought has to go into it. But, you know, you shouldn't take that for granted. It's still a crazy hard thing to do. And the fact that they realized it so fully here. Because the bulk of this movie is just being on that island and exploring the space. It is Amuro learning about these kids. It is learning about sort of how they live. Um, You know, there's the biggest, like, episode in the middle of the movie is fixing a pipe. Is what a lot of this movie is about. There is some mobile suit action at the very beginning and the very end. But this is not a mobile suit heavy movie in any way. Um, And so that is the main bulk of the film. It really is, you know, the closest analog I could give, and we mentioned it earlier, is the first half of the New Evangelion movie. The the fourth um, New Evangelion movie, where the first half of that movie, um, if if you haven't seen it, is about Shinji going back to this village um, with Rei and Asuka. And he is, um, and it's sort of this small village that has survived amidst the broader apocalypse that happens in the new Evangelion movies. And the people there are able to sort of eke out this nice little living amidst the destruction around them. Um, And it's what they're able to do day by day. And Shinji is able to sort of come out of this depressive shell through that. It's, to me, it's the best part of any Evangelion thing. It's just beautiful and stunning and so, so key to that movie's entire project. And I think Kukuru's Doan's Island is coming at it from a slightly different angle, in part that this island does not look like Edenic in the way the place in Evangelion is like very lush what has survived. And it is this like small little slice of Eden that they live in. Um, But it is still very contingent. And it's that same idea, I think, in Cuckoo's Doan. But it is that idea about sort of this self-sufficient small community sort of living in harmony with the land and what that has to teach the boy in the mobile suit who is scarred by war. Um, I think they make, they're very, they're beautiful companion pieces to one another. Because I think Ano and, and Yoshikazu Yasuhiko have like, similar ideas bubbling in their brains making these movies yeah of like the sort of crisis of of modernity or whatever of yes the, like the the mini crises that life now is facing and this i think instinct of going back to like those the simple fundamental things of like your relationship to nature and the world around you even when that nature is being destroyed and having to kind of rediscover that relationship um, is obviously it's like very key to both these movies but as you say they go about it in slightly different ways where the Eva Eva 4 appeals really to this kind of idyllic vi- vision of the sort of agrarian Japanese village um, that in like them planting rice fields and all that kind of stuff and if you watch any there's a whole kind of subgenre of anime that eventually we should be able to get to some of them in Japanimation Station that like really is fixated on agriculture and on that relationship yeah. and that classic Japanese relationship to the land and and you know Japanese style farming and all that kind of stuff um and that's really what Eva is looking at and this is is different because of like the setting and the world it's in is that this island is not as you say it is not a place that you would look at and think this is somewhere where you're going to go farm Um, And that's kind of like part of the point of their farm is that like it is hard. It is like a hard thing that they're trying to do. But if you work at it, there is stuff 
there is something there that you can grow out of and it's that volcanic soil that you just have to like break through the surface to get to um like that there there is something more kind of grounded about the approach that, that i think Stone's island has which is not saying one or the other is better but the the perspective feels appropriate where eva is more sort of like exaggerated in the way that it's approaching that whereas like gundam feels it's like much more harsh and realistic and what it is looking at of like this is the kind you're not going to have like your perfect little fucking fields in the world that amra lives in but you can find ways to make it work anyways yeah i mean evangelion is more exaggerated in every conceivable yes. fashion than gundam right so it makes sense that it would be gundam has this kind of hard-nosed realism to it and so it makes sense that you know kukuru's doan has not made uh, an eden for these kids but he's made a little oasis you know he's made a little you know sort of like safe communal space where they are able not just to live but to live together and kind of thrive through purpose, you know? Yeah. Um, and all of those things I think are important as well. And it is very much, it's an alternate vision to, you know, the forces of war that Doan cannot, you know, he can't go out there and end the war. He can't go out there and save lives that way. So he's doing this one good thing he can do. And that also just, you know... <laughs> feels more and more like this is a movie for the moment where it just you know you wake up to the news every day and it's particularly bad in america right now but there's shit going on all over the world you know yeah i mean hey in japan they just had their the most powerful person in the country was assassinated so that's a yeah (laughs) unstable scenario you know exactly and it's big things that you just you cannot individually fix right you know, if if you are in the United States and you are upset about the Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade and, and took away abortion rights, it's so frustrating because the people who have the power aren't doing anything with it. And you as a random voter, well, you can vote and it's important to vote, but that alone will not fix anything, right? Um, but there is, you know, because of that, you do see movements back towards, well, what what can meaningfully be done on an individual level? And I think that's a kind of interesting dichotomy going on in this movie because Amuro is the character who carries the weight of the world on his shoulders, right? Yeah. As the boy in the Gundam. And who we know will go on in his future to affect the world in very big ways. He is the person who can kind of end this war to some degree, right? Him and Shar together off in their future are going to do the things that ultimately wind down this war. Um, Doan has gone in the exact opposite direction of Amuro, and that's what makes him so fascinating to him. And I think what makes that episode in Original Gundam so fascinating, even if that episode never fully explores it, is the idea of the person who says, I'm taking the off-ramp from all of this, and I'm doing what little good in the world I can do. Um... And there's something about that that is just extraordinarily potent. And I think has, is like with time and age has only gotten more potent and is what makes this movie feel very, as nostalgic and elegaic as it is, very of the moment. Yeah, and, and it's it's what all that, how that all reflects on Amuro, right? I think there's a, there is, this movie is both like very happy. It's got this very happy energy to it because it's a bunch of like laughing kids and and they're with their goat and milking the goat and and you know there's a there's a like a PBS quality to some of it, not in a negative way, in a good way <laughs> of like oh yeah, it's like we're today we're learning how to milk the goat and today we're learning how to farm and everyone's it's, happy and smiling. 
it's the joke we've always made that Cuckoo's Doan's Island sounds like it's the educational show where yes. you can like come to Cuckoo's Doan's Island. It's like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, and he's going to tell you all sorts of like fun things about today. We're going to learn about agriculture, kids. And there is actually a little bit of that. There is a I love this sequence where he teaches them how to properly milk the goat, and it is this loving piece of animation that like feels like it's out of an Isao Takahata movie. This is the kind of thing yeah. like in any kind of Takahata movie about agriculture, like Only Yesterday or uh, Kaguya something like that, you would get the scene where you go really in depth on this. And in this it is, he shows like you have to do one finger at a time and it's this just beautiful piece of key animation that like I, I looked at, it's like in the storyboards, it's also very lovingly done of how we're going to do this and show how to actually milk the teat of the goat. And yeah, there is a... There's a joy in that, right? There's a real joy in like learning how to live with the goat and take care of it because it is cool and gives you meaning and purpose. Yeah, but at the same time, there is always this very sorrowful quality to the movie also, which is Amra, who is an outsider. And even, even when he is able to sort of ingratiate himself into the community and he's able to sort of see the value of it and come and have establish like a relationship with the rest of the kids and everything and Doan himself... Amru is still is ultimately an outsider and he ultimately has to leave and he ultimately has to go on the future of this war and you know and and he has to carry the burden of the war with him forward in the future and there and I think that to me is like one of the fundamental things about the movie and again it's it's something that talking about the island is in the contrast of the island is that it's like it is both sort of like peaceful and happy but it is also so heavy in its in its sort of sorrow and it's kind of grim in some ways because of how of that happiness gives that really sharp contrast to when the violence happens or to when Amro like you see that Amro can't really be a Doan at least not yet in where he is in his life and you know we know he's never really gets to be a Cuckoo's Doan um that that contrast is always there and always kind of think front of mind for the movie in many ways which is I think for me the thing that makes it so so powerful and so effective is because it's very thoughtful about how Amuro reacts to and and works within those existing themes and contrasts them so perfectly. Let's talk about Amuro then, because yeah. I think <laughs> this is the thing that surprised me most about this movie. You know, if you had told me this movie is going to make beautiful use of geography and it's going to do a great job with the kids and with Doan as a character and it's going to have really lush, beautiful animation and great music and all these things. I would have said, yeah, that sounds like something we, we would get out of a Yasuhiko-directed Gundam movie, totally. But like, but then if you told me, well, the weakness of this movie is that it has trouble finding an arc for Amuro because it's in the middle of the story, I would have also believed that. Like, that would have been kind of my expectation is that, well, it's a sort of like... It's a sub-story that you're slotting into the existing story. How do we find an actual sort of arc or journey or something significant to do with Amuro, who is one of the most well-known and like well-covered characters in anime history? What more can we do with him, particularly in the middle of this you know, story? And I do think maybe the most surprising thing about it is that I think it finds something very beautiful and soulful to do with that character and to reflect on a lot of the fundamental things we know about him and build up to that moment that we talked about, the big line at the end um, that he says to Doan and make it feel like uh, it's some kind of breakthrough for him, but also some kind of acceptance. And it is both beautiful and sad. And it's all these things mixed together. Yeah, because I do think the movie hits on the right wavelength for first Gundam Amro in particular, 
um, that is, I think, an understated quality of that series, but is fundamental to Amara's character, which is that, like, him, him being the Gundam boy is a tragedy, and that he has so much potential to be something so much better than a soldier, uh, but he cannot find a way to get out of that, you know? Um, and that's, like, the fundamental... I think element of that character and what sort of like redefines it, the notion of what a protagonist to a mecha show can be um, is that sense of tragedy to him. Uh, it is why I think it is like really important that he is the person who, who created Haro because it, it is a tangible thing that you can see. This is the other path that Amro could walk with all the incredible talent he has. Um, and Cougar's Doan's Island, the movie really captures that feeling um, and really makes him feel as I said, kind of at the top of the discussion, more of a kid than I think he even felt like in the original series, even though he's played by like a 60-year-old plus man at this point, <laughs> um, uh, which you wouldn't ever really notice, uh, you know, unless you kind of knew ahead of time that it's how the, old the voice actor is. It's the miracle of anime is that you could pull yeah. this off, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but the perspective on Amuro is so he's like awkward and he's kind of like weak and he's sort of like weirdly uncoordinated in some ways but he's such a sharp fast learner that like once he decides to sort of approach a problem he is going to find a way to solve that problem um and that you see him grow so much so quickly over the course of his time on this island to like the jealousy of the other um the kid voiced by Uchida Yuma in this movie um the the, the largest kid in the group who's sort of like Amuro's foil or whatever that then they become friends by the end Marcos um, yeah yeah Marcos um that is that dynamic is so distinctly Amro, and I think it is zeroed in on in this movie in a way that is more sort of like refined than it ever was in the original show, partially because the original show didn't have a 90 minute movie to do to kind of tackle that specific element of the character and had a lot of other plates to spin in what it was doing. But Amro is very, very much the protagonist of this movie, like, it is about him. Um, it is, it is, you know, Kuru Dawn is like a secondary protagonist for sure, but this is Amro's film. Um, and I was very happy to see how sort of thoughtful they approached him and, and really willing to make him kind of this like awkward bumbling kid for a lot of the movie until he is able to sort of become a hero. But even in the ways that he becomes a hero is extremely sad because it is him having to resort to violence and killing people and, and being the Gundam pilot again. Um, that that dynamic and that contrast and everything they do with the character along that journey, I think it's perfect. Absolutely. I think, you know, seeing him resist Kukuru's Doan in the island at first, because he keeps going out looking for the Gundam and all of that, and Doan keeps giving him sort of olive branches, right? Of like, he is not punishing this kid, he's not locking him up, he's he's like trying to quiet the other kids down when they're mad at Amuro. When Amuro wants to go out again, he gives him the hat to like help him from heat stroke, and he gives him the canteen for water, and all of this stuff, and just realizes like he is not meeting this kid with violence, he's giving him an opportunity. Like, clearly Doan wants Amuro to stay on this island, it's like another kid he mm -hmm. can save, right? Yeah. Um, and when Amuro starts to kind of warm to that, 
he flourishes, right? Like, he's not good with the hoe at first because he's a lanky kind of weird kid whose strength isn't in that department. But he gets through it, and as soon as he sees the soil underneath, he realizes what Doan is doing, and Doan is very impressed by that. He, like, notices that right off the bat, that this kid gets it. And then, of course, there's the entire adventure with the broken pipe, where you see all of the best of Amuro going to a very different purpose. It's like, instead of killing with the Gundam, it's literally giving life. It is like connecting to the source of life, which is water, right? And he is able yeah. to get down in that same way, like, <laughs> him being a kid is part of what makes him a good Gundam pilot, because he's young and has instincts and all of this stuff, right? In that case, it is because he is young and he is smaller and he is lanky, he's able to get through this hole and be able to fix the pipe. And it is this vision of like an alternate universe version of Amuro where his role in this war is not piloting the Gundam. It is doing something like this that is like life-giving and affirmational. And ultimately that is not where he's able to go. He doesn't stay on this island with them. He does get back in the Gundam. And when he gets back in the Gundam at the end of the movie, in some ways it's heroic and in some ways it's just brutally tragic. There is, I think, one of the most striking scenes in the movie is when he kills the two soldiers the first one he does with the trick that he's very good at at this point in the series of you know lighting up the laser beam right in front of the cockpit and melting the pilot and then he uses the gun to step on the other one and there's this shot of Amuro close up in the cockpit of just weeping a little bit at this it's a beautiful shot it's one that he devoted a lot of uh, Yasiko devoted a lot of panels in the storyboard to depicting because it's clearly an important moment to show you know Amuro having pain not just at doing this but like being back in the role of doing this because he mm -hmm. has seen something else and then he goes out and does his hero shit but you know i think the thing about the climax of the movie is that it is he is giving doan what he can't give himself and it's yeah. only through seeing this other path that he's able to have that moment and it's incredibly sad and it's a you know it's it's a, like i said i think it's a lot of emotions mixed in because it's also beautiful but, you know, yeah, I think the tragedy of Amuro is very deeply felt in this movie. Yeah, like, it's just, you know, I think the fundamental thing for him as a character is, like, you have to simultaneously hold these two contradictory things in the viewer at the same time, which is you want to see him kick ass in the Gundam, right? You want to see him be a hero. You want to see him save the day. You want to see him fight, you know, Char or whoever is in Prevail, and also you want him to get as far away from the fucking Gundam as possible. You want him to just bail, get out, jump out of the, get a fucking parachute or some shit, jump off the white base and go somewhere else. And it's like, you both need to be desperately holding both of those things at the same time. Um, and that's one of those things about the climax of the movie is that it kind of weaponizes that dynamic very directly um, because it's so stark. You're given such a clear alternative for Amro, which is to leave all the shit behind and stay on this island or go for, you know, if he doesn't want to stay on this island, he can go get a bunch of war orphans and find another island and name it Amro Ray's <laughs> Island and have his own movie. Um, so it's like you, you see that he could do that. But of course, also, if he did do that, this island would be destroyed, that 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 all of what is here would be lost because there's nobody else that can fight this fight. And, and, and you know, Doan is able to beat Amuro at the beginning of this movie because he got the fucking jump on him. But um, once Amuro is in an advantageous position against any enemy in this movie, he dispatches of them easily. Like, it's, it's fairly trivial, um, which is something that I think is like both very appropriate for where he is at in the story and is also one of the things that's like tragic is it's like god he's like he is so he's so good at it he's such an effective warrior even if he doesn't want to be 
Yeah. Again, it's it's the frustration whenever I hear anyone say, yeah, the special thing about Eva is that it deconstructs the mecha genre. And for the first time ever, it has a boy who doesn't want to get in the robot. And it's like, shut the fuck up. You don't know. Hideaki Anno himself would tell you to shut the fuck up yes. because that's not what that show is doing in that sense. That's or Whatever is special about Eva, it's not that. That's not yeah. the thing it came up with. That's Gundam. And no one has ever done it better than Amuro in first Gundam that dynamic of the the hero and the necessary hero to a certain degree it's not saying that Zeon doesn't need this you know Mobile Suit Gundam never does a both sides are equally bad you know just fuck off with the war entirely it has a a very clear point of view on who needs to fall here um, even if the other side is wildly imperfect too but there is that tragedy of the other life that Amuro didn't live you know, in a lot of ways, this this movie is a very clear companion piece to Coming Home, the you know best yeah. episode of First Gundam, or at least the most powerful one in a lot of ways, uh, which it directly recaps here because we have that flashback dream sequence where he remembers his mom saying these things to him. There's, I think it's kind of funny. There's several points in this movie where they build in space for Toru Furia to just say the most famous lines from Gundam again. Like there's that Bright has a flashback to the yes. slapping scene, so you get all of those. But, you know, it very much is the other side of coming home. It is the, you know, person Amuro could be in a community if he didn't have the white base calling him over here, right? Yeah. I do want to I do want to shine a little bit more of, like, a specific spotlight on some of the stuff that Todofudia is doing because it is, it is insanely impressive. Like, it is, like, it's, it's a thing where it's, like, very easy to take for granted uh, how good he is as Amuro. But, honestly, it was, like... Sp- Particularly, it was the scene where he uh, redoes the like Nidoto Butana, like you slapped me twice. Um, he the way he plays that this time around feels so much younger. Like it's it's his voice cracks. He's so much more desperate. Like it sounds like like a, a teenage kid who has just been like slapped repeatedly by a father figure. You know, like it is it is a like it's a really powerful like strong delivery of that line that's fairly different from the original um and it's it is just like it's interesting to me that that Todifuya who is now 68 years old Jesus um, Christ <laughs> is able to do that and evoke that like almost more effectively this is something he's talked about um in in some interviews I saw about this movie is him looking back at the original episode and some of like the stuff he did in in the original Gundam and obviously he's continued to play young Amuro throughout all for like he does it every year because there's a mcdonald's thing commercial that he'll come back for or there's a video game where he comes and does some lines and all that kind of stuff but really he like tried to like really like sort of get back to basics and kind of reassess it and and feeling like when he was young because he was in his early 20s when he originally played amro he tried to sort of make amro a bit more of an adult and like get more of a little bit more like kind of that heroic stuff in it but now that he's so much older, he can't look at Amuro other than as anything but a little kid, um, because you know that age gap is so much more severe. Um, that someone, you know, once you're like an adult, adult, a 15 year old is is just a child to you, um, and that that is a lot of what he's bringing to the performance, which I think is really appropriate for how the character is written and the whole perspective of the production feels in line with that. You know, all of the people who worked on Gundam were relatively young men when they worked on Gundam in Mobile Suit Gundam. 
Um, you know, they weren't people who had been in the industry for 40, 50 years at that point. Um, the so industry hadn't whole... existed for 40 or 50 it, years. <laughs> exactly. So it's like their life perspective was relatively speaking much closer to Amaro than anybody who has been in it, you know, has been for the full length of the franchise making a new Gundam thing today. And I think you see some of that in like, I think that's some of what changes when you get like turn a Gundam and G Reco with like modern Tomino and, and how his perspective, I think shifts partially with like, as that age gap greatens in your relationship to children fundamentally changes as you get older. Um, and I think you feel that so much in Tony Fudia's performance. And it's, it's amazing to me. Like it's one of the most, incredible fucking vocal performances i've ever heard if you're looking at like what is being demanded of the actor it's like you are 68 years old play this 15 year old boy and make him feel more like a 15 year old boy when you played him when he were, you were like 23 yeah it's incredible and and like i think you're right about that you know the famous line about you know you slapped me twice not even my father slapped me twice there's an indignance to it in first gundam there's a desperation to it here, yes. right? And there's like there's a lot of like those kinds of moments, um, and it's just yeah the the quality of his voice. You would not guess that this is a 68 year old guy unless you know who Toru Furia is. You know he's just very good at because I've heard him talk using his normal voice. He doesn't sound like this anymore. No, you know yeah. he was putting it on when he was 23, also obviously, right? Um, and it is amazing that he can tap into that. It's I think it speaks also to how well written the movie it is. You know how well performed the character is by the animators also you yes. know like it's it's something this movie just in its character animation i think part of this is just that you know yasuhiko is involved at every stage for this movie he is the you know the main director in in the origin there was he was like the general director but then there was someone else who did sort of the day-to-day -day animation direction right yeah. um so yasuhiko here is the director he did the storyboards hey you know he's credited as character designer which he would have to be credited as anyway because he designed all these characters but you know what i mean yeah um you know he's on on it like every step of the way and i think there is if you've read the origin manga and that manga is just so good at getting into the heads of characters with a single drawing and a fairly simple drawing because yasuhiko's drawings are not that complicated you know mm -hmm. um there's a lot of that in this movie of like i think you particularly get it with amuro but i think you get it with everyone i think bright is phenomenally done in this movie we'll have to talk yeah. about him but like on the level of animation and writing and voice acting and everything but just basically any character you meet in the movie it's just incredible performances of the animation itself which is always something you know you never want to forget about the animators are acting through the characters too yeah yeah like the whole everybody involved in the process of constructing the characters is at the top of their game and if you want to talk about like the age thing this is one of the things about the movie and i knew this going in and it's like it's just like fucking crazy when you think about it and it's one of those things that makes voice acting fucking incredible is kukuru's doan is voiced by a voice actor named takeuchi shinsuke uh who jonathan was born in 1997 i looked this five up years younger than us I looked this up earlier. He's 24 years old. And I thought when I saw that, I'm like, I must have the wrong Takayoshi Shinsuke. Like, is there another person named that? Because it's crazy to me. I would not have guessed that this Kukuru's Doan is voiced by a fucking kid, but he is. No, yeah, because uh, Takayoshi Shinsuke is a relative newcomer, but he's been in a lot of stuff. Um, and he has like a, because I've heard him in other things, and he has an extremely deep voice. Um, so like, it's funny to me that like, even though again he's five years younger than we are he always voices like older adult men um or it's like a really intense if i look at like some of his characters it looks like it's like the really intense dude in a sports anime um that kind of thing <laughs> 
Um, but it's, yeah, it's just one of those things that's like, you know, voice acting is a crazy magic trick <laughs> because you would never think that he's that young. Um, because obviously he's a very talented actor. Um, so he's able to play a character much older than him. Um, but the, the mental image, and, and you would see it if you, you saw interviews, you would see Todofuria and Suzuki Takeuchi and like Yoshikazu Yasuhiko and, uh, Furukawa Toshio who plays Kai Shiden and has always played Kai Shiden. Um, you'd see them all together and it's like really weird. It's like a really mind-bending <laughs> image that's like, okay, here's two people uh, who are like 68 and I think Furukawa Toshio, I believe is over 70 years old at this point. Um... Uh, who are playing like 15, 16 year old kids. And then here's this 25 year old young gentleman who is voicing like the 30 something year old Cuckoo's Doan. And it's just like, man, those recording sessions must have been like weird as soon as you stop and like you hit like, okay, cut, like we got what we needed. Um, I like, you know, the difference in like, especially in like the Japanese very formal, you know, construction of like your senpai and like someone who's like, oh, you know, Todofuri is like at the top of the fucking food chain in terms of like voice actors in the industry. And, and Takeshi Shinsuke, like, you know, he's not at the very bottom, but he's still extremely junior. Um, like that must just be so weird as soon as you hit cut. And it's like that relationship has to do a complete 180 um, in your like actual social interactions. Like it's just, it's, it's, it has got to be the most dramatic scenario like that I think I've seen in an anime um, with with just how extreme that difference is. It's very funny, you know, but I think this is actually something that extends beyond voice acting in Japan because this is, if you just look at Japanese cinema, there's always been a certain element of like, especially for men playing older than their age or, or not younger in the other way because that's harder in live action, yes. right? But, like, the playing up, like, Chishu Ryu, who was Yasujiro Ozu's leading man, you know, he played old fathers on the verge of death for his whole career, starting in his, like, 30s, um, which is hilarious when you go back and, like, in Tokyo Story or Late Spring, he's not that much older than Setsuko Hara, but he's playing her much older father. Um, you know, Tatsuya Nakadai uh, in stuff like Ron, just playing yeah. way, way above his age. Like, that's always been a certain willingness in Japanese cinema that I don't think generally exists in American cinema, where something like Orson Welles playing old Citizen Kane is a very mm -hmm. much an outlier, right? Yeah. Um, but I do think that, you know, you get that carryover into animation a little bit. But, of course, then in animation it can go the other way around. Um, yeah. By the way, just for a second, he's not in the movie, like, a ton. But we got to talk about Kai. And the yeah. Toru... Uh, not Toru Furia. That's, that's Amuro. But, um... um why am I forgetting? Furukawa Toshio. Yeah, Furukawa Toshio. Sorry for a second. I somehow forgot the name of one of my favorite actors ever. Um, but yeah, Furukawa is fucking amazing in this. He's having the time of his life. It's just him having fun with the character. And he's still like, you can hear the age. He's older, obviously. He has to pull a little harder to do Kai's voice. But he's just fantastic. It's so fun. I love it. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's delightful that like he's still playing the role and everything and like and it's like with Tony Fudio like it doesn't feel weird it doesn't feel like no oh my god like you've got this old man to play this this dude this like young kid um it, it's totally seamless um yeah it is like it's not like Kai is in the movie a huge amount but it, feel, it feels like they gave Kai more to do in the movie because they knew they had Furukawa to come in and do yeah. the voice for him um and so it feels like he is definitely you know compared to like Hayato um, and even like in like Slegger, he has and in Job John, who Job John has some good screen time in this movie. I was happy yes. to see Job John, <laughs> you know, get some stuff to do. Um, but but of the other characters, you know, Bright and Kai are definitely the ones who are, are like the most prominent in this movie. 
Yeah, and I love it. I when we did uh, on our part three of our anniversary, where we did all the crazy lists, including our top ten vocal performances, I did have Furukawa slot in there at number ten for me as Kai. And I will say, I had seen this movie by then, and it did influence that because uh-huh. it's just like, man, what a! It's such a fun performance. You know, this is uh, this is not Kai at his most dramatic, which we see elsewhere in Gundam, and he's great at that too. But it is, you know, it's great. And he's having a big summer because also the new Dragon Ball movie is very Piccolo focused. And I'm so, I'm so excited to see that because he has not had enough chances to do Piccolo lately. Uh, Even in Super and stuff, Piccolo isn't in it enough. So. Yes. So it is the summer of Futakawa Toshio. Yeah. um, And and what a good summer that is. Yeah. I was going to say, I actually don't know if there's any point in Dragon Ball where I'm satisfied with the amount of Piccolo. I always want more Piccolo because Piccolo is just a great character, which is probably a good thing that they never give me too much. But yes, I always want more Piccolo. I mean, there is a reason why, like, every <laughs> Dragon Ball movie had to have the big Piccolo, Piccolo comes scene. in and saves the day moment. Yes. It, it's, like, became a meme, effectively, is because everybody loves Piccolo. They made it a meme, because they do the joke in movie 10 with Krillin coming in and pretending to yes. be Piccolo, which is fucking great. Anyway, we're getting off topic. We'll do a Dragon Ball podcast in a couple weeks when Superhero comes out, so look yep. forward to that. But, yes, um, love him. Let's go back to talking about Kukuru's Doe on himself because it's, you know, it makes sense that they re I was going to say recast. I don't know if you can even say recast because it's effectively a new character, right? Yeah. Um, but it is funny. This is, you know, someone obviously who was not born for almost 20 years after the Kukuru's Doe on episode aired. Um, but I think it's such an effective characterization. And one thing I find striking is that they actually, in the movie, give less formal exposition about him than the episode does like the movie has the extra you know this thing about the southern cross brigade that he was with but in terms of doan himself there's one brief flashback which i was actually interested to learn is cut down from how it was storyboarded if you look in the storyboards that i have here there are more panels about it that are because there's a bunch of them through the book where you find panels that have an x through them because they cut this shot from the movie at some point um, but not only do they have that, but there's a couple of sort of pages missing. They had a bigger flashback for him at some point, and they made it more, I think, intentionally vestigial. And they don't have him at any point in the movie, like, turn to Amuro or someone and explain his motivations or past, which is in the episode. There are lines where Doan yes. says, like, you know, I accidentally killed these children's parents, and now I feel responsible. They choose not to do any of that, and he's a man who just is fully living for the present of what he is accomplishing uh and he tends to be very quiet and solitary there's a lot of scenes of him you know once the kids are all down for the night he just keeps working and there's this i think it is in the the character performance of the animation and then when we hear the voice you know he has this intense guilt that he does not voice but he has put into his entire life's work to the point that he is working himself you know ragged for it yeah, I think it was a really smart choice to keep him as a fairly aloof or distant character from the audience's POV because cause you, you mentioned earlier with, with like the actor playing older things, Citizen Kane, and this feels a lot like that in the sense of, you know, it's the kind of thing where the movie is named after a character that is not necessarily the main, main character or is not the like perspective character. Um, and the part of like the point of the movie is... And actually, Char's counterattack is a very good example of this to keep it in the Gundam family, where it's like part of the point of it is to sort of examine the character and, and from the outside without access to their interiority much and to try to determine, like, who are you? 
why are you doing this? Um, and a lot of it is also that it's, it's Amuro trying to figure that out. Um, like, like he, Amuro clearly is confused by and doesn't really know how to respond to Doan and like what to do in this scenario because it's it's fucking weird and it's confusing. Um, and I think that that's a really effective narrative move is to maintain that mystery and allow it, like, leave it up to the audience to sort of determine how, like, how deep this goes and how much of this is, like, you know, he doesn't say explicitly, I have, you know, these are all orphans of my own making effectively that I went and go killed them, but it's like applied. Um, and I think it's better to leave it in that territory and let the audience sort of engage with that question of this more mysterious character rather than just sort of hand that exposition to you on a silver platter and say, this is just what Doan is and and move on with it uh, because it means that you are with Amuro trying to sort of piece out what the fuck this dude's whole deal is throughout the movie. And I like that it's just... It's never said. It's never yeah. Doan says it. It's never Amuro says it to him and then Doan looks away wistfully. It's just this thing that we kind of all piece together because the specifics of his backstory don't matter as much as what he is doing in the present, right? Yeah. And it clearly, Amuro doesn't need Doan to say those things because Amuro's lived it, right? Amuro's killed people too and at this point he's already killed people accidentally and he's going to go kill more people and that guilt accumulates and Doan has chosen to deal with that by adopting these war orphans and maybe they're war orphans of his own making maybe they're not it doesn't particularly matter it is the it is the good he can do in the world and then there is this additional level that the movie gives us of that this is a Zeon outpost and he's intentionally playing Zeon against themselves basically by being there and he's keeping them away by making them kind of think he's on their side but he is there working on the nukes to disarm them um so there's sort of a couple of levels he is like effectively trying to reclaim the island from Zeon by being there you know and and mm -hmm. disarm these weapons and i think that whole side of it is also really cool yeah and that adds again to that element of kind of like mystery that helps keep the plot more propulsive because you know it's a very small scale story overall and there's not like a lot of real like plot ass plot in the movie um so them adding in that this is another thing that uh was in one of those interviews you shared with me is like adding in that element of the nukes was a good way of like keeping the like of, of explaining one like why are they so insistently staying on this island if people keep on showing up with mobile suits and cooker's don't has to fight them barehanded which is like that is a good point <laughs> like you do need to have like a reason in a you can, you can get away with it for a 20 minute tv episode it's not it doesn't pass muster if it's a 90 minute movie you would eventually be like why haven't you just like taken all the kids and left at some point um but also it gives this sort of um, bigger mystery you can follow with Doan of like what is he doing what is this like weird base what are these like what is it that he is working on throughout the movie um and it being re revealed you know you I think you, they give you a lot of clues to piece it together fairly early on but that moment at the end where all the nukes go flying up and they just blow up on their own I was like legitimately surprised that that was how that resolved because I Me thought too. for sure oh they're going to replicate the iconic Odessa moment but do it here um, where Amuro has to cut the nuke or like one of the nukes or something and do that whole thing. He has to cut the nuke on the thing. dotted line, as yes. the diagram shows, yes. <laughs> um, and instead, I, I love that it's like, no, like that's Doan's shit and he fucking took care of it. And that's like, and that is why is he's here. That is what he's trying to do. And like, that's the moment where I think any kind of suspicions or anything of, of Doan are like fully dispersed and you and you know who he is in his heart, like who he is deep down by that moment 
when all the nukes explode um and it's like that's a i think that's the most probably like large really notably dramatically different plot element that they added in um is that whole dynamic with the nukes which adds a lot to the movie and i i think that the entire construction of it is very artful and how it dovetails with all this kind of stuff they're adapting from the original premise of the episode yeah I, I couldn't agree more i when i watched this movie the first time i wasn't paying attention to like how long i'd been watching it so because if i had looked at how much time was left there's not enough time for a big action sequence with the nukes yeah. right but i didn't know that so i'm watching the movie and the nukes go flying and i'm like oh so because the nukes thing does not happen in the manga for the odessa day it's a different kind of final yeah. confrontation um and of course it doesn't happen in the movies so i'm like is yasuhiko finally gonna get to do the big amuro cuts the nuke on the dotted line sequence again um and instead they just blow up and it's so much better because it mm -hmm. intentionally undermines what could be a bigger climax which makes the themes of the movie much more potent but then you get just you know a beautiful moment of visuals and i think visual metaphor of the nukes become fireworks essentially that yeah. the kids there's this great shot it starts with it's kika in the middle of the frame and she you know throws her hand and it's like look look up there and then all the kids kind of come into the frame together um it's a it's a beautiful piece of staging i, I loved looking at it in the storyboards even because he draws very like precisely here's the moment with kika and then the kids coming in and all of this because it's like a very well-designed moment of the nukes go from this thing that could have destroyed the world to it's this moment of wonder for the kids and that is what doan is creating right he is protecting them from the, he's like building you know skills and a personality that will allow them to survive beyond him but he is also turning the darkness of this world into something that you know he can make positive for these children and that is his heroism and what's amazing is that if we are expecting amuro to go cut on the dotted line and destroy the nukes what doan has done is even more heroic and it's yeah. something we wouldn't have thought of something amuro wouldn't have thought of because it's beyond the bounds of the story we thought we were in and that's what makes it so powerful yeah it's, it's a really perfect example of a, of a defectively used anti-climax you know like we typically use the term anti-climax as a negative thing but it doesn't have to be it's a more like technical term of of how you can manage the climactic moments of your story um, and and this is like a really good example of like sometimes going for something that is smaller scale and does not lead to the big dramatic sequence um, can be better if it is what your story is kind of demanding um, and, it, and it demonstrates like how thorough like Yoshikazu's sort of grasp is uh, Yoshikazu Yasuhiko's grasp is on the story that he's trying to tell with this movie that they went in that direction because I'm, there must have been someone along that line there had to have been someone looking at the movie who said, you got to put an action scene in there. Like, I can't imagine this movie going through without someone being like, come on, you got to do the nuke thing? Come on! And then being like, no, fuck that. Like, this is what happens. Um, yeah, it's great. It's it's fantastic. Talking about the action more generally, let's just talk about how they do all of that. I do like the element that they've built in here of kind of fleshing out, even if Doan doesn't give it to us, we get a little bit of it of Doan's backstory that he led this like elite team, the Southern Cross, and we get those characters, we get their cool sort of brown versions of what the black tri-stars have they're these high yeah. mobility versions of the zaku and they are the rickdom and they look really really cool um and i like those those there's a little bit this movie does not do what the tv episode did where where doan is a master of mobile suit martial arts yeah. the line that 
kind of lands with a thud in original Gundam, but would go on to inspire the world of G Gundam, and God bless yes. it for us. But yes, uh, we do not get mobile suit martial arts in this movie. That would be a little out of place. But instead, they sort of suggest that Doan was an ace, basically. He was a, you know, really, like, powerful, feared pilot. There's the one sort of fanboy on the Southern Cross group who was excited to fight him and all of that stuff. And he is. He's extremely capable, as we see, as he takes out most of them in his shitty beat-up Zaku, which is a fucking great design. Um, If you haven't seen the episode in a while, one of the problems with that episode is the Zakus all look weirdly tall tall and gangly and i like that instead here we have a, a zaku that a looks correct and b is all like beat up and there's like pieces that are kind of missing off it the paint is chipped because he's been using it for a while uh, i love uh doan zaku in this movie it looks great yeah and and just like the action in general is really 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 impressive like it's very much like they do the mobile suit stuff broadly in the style of the origin ovas you know it's like all cg and that kind of stuff but it is like suitably advanced from that um and it very much has an old school gundam aesthetic in like to the style to the choreography where it's really about a small handful of moves and that is yep. what constitutes a fight it's not like here's a bunch of crazy beam clashes and stuff like that um it is you know i mean a lot of fights end in one maneuver or it's like a tiny handful. I think the most is you just get a couple more with Doan in some of his fights, but that's mostly because they're just using that to intercut with what Amuro is doing. And then as soon as it focuses on, okay, then now we're actually going to look at Doan fighting one of these guys. It's like two or three moves and the fight is over. Um, and I think we're that is that is like my preferred version of mobile suit combat in general, is I like the, the sense of weight and the finality and the intentionality to it. And it's very much what original Mobile Suit Gundam did. Um, and there are definitely some even like specific references to things like you noted the him activating the beam saber and disintegrating the cockpit, um, which is a classic kind of armor move. I really like at the beginning of the movie, I feel like there's a little bit of a kind of callback to the Ramba Rao fight where from the anime where armor discards the shield and does like the two-handed stance with the beam saber on this kind of like a kendo looking stance that is very cool he um, starts that fight by just tossing his gun into the ocean which is such yes. a like amuro just is so he loves tossing things away when he doesn't need them and yes. uh probably causes a headache for someone else on white base but amuro throws shit all the time yeah, there's definitely, like, whoever's in charge of armaments for the mobile suits at the white base is just like, you motherfucker. Like, you gotta, there's, like, a fucking thing that you could just attach it. Like, you could just put it on the back. Like, it's got, it's not like we didn't think of the fact that you gotta put the beam rifle somewhere sometimes. Just fucking stow it away, man. Don't just chuck it into the goddamn ocean. <laughs> yes, that's the post credit scene of this movie, is someone from white base having to go swim out there and find the gun. Yeah, but but so that style of the action I think is phenomenal. Um and then there's just like some amazing hero shots. I think the whole sequence where Doan has been beaten and it's at the bottom of that crater and then Amro is the best use of the Vulcan guns on the head of a mobile suit ever. Is Amro like peppering that dude with his Vulcan guns just to get him to turn around and you have that amazing shot of the Gundam and this is where it uses um I believe it's the the like Gundam theme and the instrumental version of the original show's theme song Toby Gundam. Um, well but it starts with the da 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 yes da. it's Gundam stands its ground which is it's used as the next episode preview but it starts with the big horn lick and they do a big yes. he- movie hero version of it. It's a fucking great track. 
Yeah, and then he slowly starts walking down the crater and then takes out the two beam sabers and activates them, but like one before the other. And it's just like so satisfying. <laughs> it it yes. feels like the 3D animators spent a lot of time on those shots, just making them, the rhythm of them is so perfect. And the sense of weight of the mobile suits is so perfect. Um, but I love that like the last fight of this movie is just Amuro figures out, like, let's just get this guy up on the cliffside. And then he's completely fucked. Um, he can't do anything. And it shows like Amuro is very tactical in the way that he fights. And he sees this guy's in this high mobility version of Azaku. He tries to spin around. He's very like laterally mobile. Get him on a cliff edge and you cut off that entire ability. He's got effectively no ranged weapons and Amuro just kicks his ass. And it's like a couple minutes. Like it's not a big, crazy, huge sequence or anything. Um, it's just very thoughtfully constructed and choreographed and animated. Um, and that that to me that's like the real good shit that's what you really want yeah and it's I love how that one happens because he gets him up on the cliff and this is the other great use of the Vulcan gun in the movie he uses the Vulcan gun to like get him off balance a little bit mm -hmm. and then he goes in for the kill and like just cuts him up and throws him off and he blows up it's really good you know and and I was actually kind of curious when I looked through the storyboards if all the action would sort of be in the storyboards drawn by Yasuhiko because sometimes now if you've got big CG action, it's not going to be all one thing one person drew in the boards, right? Yeah. Um, and there are a couple of moments in the action where there's there's been a supplement that like someone has thrown on the side of the board and like thrown in, oh, we're going to need this shot here. But mostly it is just Yasuhiko continuing through and it's drawn, and it's the exact choreography you get in the finished movie just drawn by hand. So it's there from the, the inception stage with the, with the storyboards. And it's, it's just, and it's very clear there as well, the choreography. It's all about these specific big moves. Um, and yeah, it's done very well. The, you know, this, this is like kind of the highest point we've gotten of the MS Igloo tradition of the CGI yes. mobile suits where you start in MS Igloo and then, you know, mobile suit Gundam, the origin picks that up and I think does it, you know, a step better because the main animation director of the origin is the Igloo guy, right? Yes. And yeah. Yes. And then now you get that here, and I think this is the best version of it so far. There's a little wonkiness here and there about, like, I think kind of like the edges of the mobile suits versus the animation because they they do cell shade it and add hand animation on to make them look like they're of a piece of the world. And there's a little bit of inevitable wonkiness here and there, but largely it's done really beautifully. I think the best version of this is still how Hathaway handled all of it, um, but in terms of the more MS Igloo style tradition, this is really good and makes me happy that we've kind of been on this path because I think it's a cool way to integrate it all. Yeah, and I don't think the Hathaway style would have necessarily worked for this movie because no. like, Hathaway style demands like a certain amount of kineticism that would be inappropriate here. Um, yeah. and, and I think like the more like staid classical framing of the action here wouldn't necessarily work if you're trying to do it with all the techniques that they use for Hathaway. Um, yeah, because because like like you saying that oh like Yasuhiko just because Yasuhiko even storyboarded those action moments does make a lot of sense to me because they are very manga esque right because yeah. the because that is how manga always does action effectively because it is it is the only way that manga can do action right. is a handful of big moves you you can't do filler because like what's the point <laughs> like you're having to draw it anyways it's it's just as hard to draw filler as it is to draw an intentional thing. Um, so yeah, it, it makes sense to me that that is all storyboarded directly from him. That's cool. 
Yeah. You can tell in the storyboards, I mean, you can tell what's him because he has such a distinctive style. Um, but what's funny is he did all of his storyboards just completely by hand, you know, pencil. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not even, he doesn't even use a shading pencil. It's just one pencil and then all of the notes on the side, the dialogue is just handwritten. And then the couple of, uh, Imga, he did two big scenes in the movie storyboarded. And her stuff is much more, some of it's by hand, but like, there's a lot of digital augmentation. And there is, like, all of her notes are typed in there. And it is kind of fun you get to like like she did the dinner scene early in the movie where Amro comes mm-hmm. back and they all and it ends with them all doing their kind of like pinky swear in the air that's one of her scenes and then I think it's the scene with Makuve in the middle of the movie is also her but she did those two scenes and she has a very different drawing style and like I said some of it is done like on the computer um, but yeah Yasuhiko's is as you would probably expect just completely old school by yes. hand pencil and um, and all the action is his stuff there's the he did that and it's just pencil drawings and yeah it's cool very very cool. See, this uh, is why I spent one hundred and eighty dollars on the fucking. <laughs> yes, very good. We got we got to mention it as much as we can on the podcast. So I know. You can get all, all, get your all money my money's worth. Yeah, so I can use it as a tax write off, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I don't think I would want to do that as a tax write off because I wouldn't want to try to explain it to the IRS in case they asked. <laughs> it, it would be, be a too very much. complicated conversation. <laughs> I'd have to start. Look, in nineteen seventy nine, there was this thing called Mobile Suit Gundam. But anyway, um, oh, my dog is stretching out on the bed and making noises. It's funny. Anyway, all right. Uh, where, so where were we with? We were talking about all the action. The action's great, even if it's not the focus of the movie. I do just generally love the way the mobile suits look in the origin design. Like, mm-hmm. the Gundam itself just looks so fucking good here, Sean. Yeah, it's got all the little, like, fiddly bits and stuff like that. It yep. looks like, you know, when someone makes a perfect grade version of the original Gundam and puts every single seal and sticker and all that stuff on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it works well. It's the kind of thing where it's like you could only make this design look like this if you were doing a 3D CG model, right? Yeah. Um, it would be ridiculous to try to do this with classical animation. Um, and, yeah, it looks great. It works really well. It is good. It is very much of a piece with how it looks in the origin manga and the OVAs. Uh and it's it's yeah. awesome but we don't really see it in the ovas outside sure. of a couple of shots like of the planning of it so i feel like now this is the version of the gundam that's kind of on par with like the version of Shar zaku in that series mm-hmm. where we've gotten like the full modernized version of it and it just it's it's great it embraces the big bold colors it's very very good um where else should we go with this i i think i you know want to spend some time on the ending of the movie but i don't want to get there quite just yet um we mentioned earlier oh sorry go ahead yeah well i was going to say this might be where you were going to go also is captain bright has a fair amount of stuff in this movie uh that we haven't really touched on that is this is i believe the most we've gotten of narita ken's version of bright who he was recast for unicorn what is the first thing he did i think and that's probably also the other place where he has the most screen time um but there's like a good chunk of captain bright in this movie honestly more than i was even expecting um because he pops up throughout the film and it's really nice because it it is very much i think in line with obviously like the origin manga but also just the original version of bright from first gundam and there's like a lot of care taken to showing that he is a like this very high strung up dude who has like so much responsibility so much is being asked of him he is in no way shape or form prepared at the stage he is in his life to be in the position of authority he is in and he is snapping at people constantly and then he goes back to his room and he's like oh god oh i shouldn't have said that oh fuck <laughs> Every, everything is going to hell and it's all going to be my fault oh jesus christ um and 
I love that, that they really have, like, captured and even accentuated that dynamic that was in the anime, and it, like, enriches his relationship with Mirai, that they have a couple of scenes together. I just think, like, you know, he's not the biggest character in the movie, but for what where he shows up, it is such a good depiction of young, bright, dealing with, like, all this horse shit he doesn't know what to do with. Yeah, I, I'm really impressed by what Narita Ken has done with the role, mm-hmm. because, you know, big fucking shoes to fill, right? one of the yep. iconic voices of Gundam with Unicorn what kind of helped there is that he's playing an older version of Bright beyond where you know we had seen Bright before and so I think there was a little space for like reinvention and playing with the age of the character he'll get to do that again when we get to him in the Hathaway movies right yeah. but this is right you know smack dab in the middle of first Gundam and so how do you do the character there and part of it is just that it's very smartly written but I think he really gets you know the just the voice it's it's a really good impression of the original voice um but i think it also gets a lot of the sort of inherent humor and pathos and then i just think yasuhiko is really good at writing this character i love the version Mm -hmm. of bright in the manga you know bright in the manga is slightly more comical in that his exaggerations are more uh or his his expressions are more exaggerated in the manga than you typically get in the anime but it's very and part of that is just because you don't have a voice it's on the page it's a manga so they play with it a little bit more but you get that here um and you get some you know you get the scene of him kind of snapping at amuro early in the movie and then i think god this was the scene when i knew we were in for something special watching this movie is when he's back in his quarters and mirai comes in and it's just such a it's it's him going man i shouldn't have pushed him that far and mirai's like "Eh, he's a delicate kid you know and and then bright has that thought to himself of like man i wish he had just deserted you know like just like because he doesn't want to put amuro through this right and so that's a fantastic fantastic scene and then you get just some of the best captain bright comedy ever later in the movie when he is intentionally buying time for everyone to go do the mission and he's on the horn with the commander who's telling him to go to belfast and he just starts inventing on the phone all these different problems and he's picking up the different receivers on his captain's chair and he's like hey is that part fixed yet no oh man we're not going to be able to take off it's uh it's one of the funniest captain bright scenes ever yeah and it's great because you know it gives captain bright has a little character arc over this right and and it's really well delivered because you've got these a couple of scenes on the white base where slugger comes back um and hears that it's like what we're just gonna like one he was out drinking with the other other guys who aren't in here but there's like a cast of additional characters in the manga that are like his the other members his squad that also joined the white base um, and so he's after with them, comes back after all the shit has happened and Amuro has been left behind on this island. Um, and then he has this thing with Kai where he says, um, you know, have you ever thought what it would be like to like face a court martial? Um, yes. And Kai's like, uh, huh? <laughs> um, and then it cuts. <laughs> and so you get a couple of moments like that and you get some like jokes with Sela and stuff. But you think, you know, it's intentionally set up for your expectation to be that they're doing this without Bright's approval um, and they're going to do the thing that everybody always does, which is they steal a mobile suit or whatever, and they go fucking leave the hangar. <laughs> a thing that is clearly trivially easy to do in the Gundam universe, that someone just like, you know, the universal century is a lot like our world in the future, um, except for we never invented a lock. Locks were never invented. It never <laughs> happened. Nobody had the idea of like keys and locks. And so it's just like, how can you possibly keep people like prevent someone from just opening up the hangar doors and stealing your fucking mobile suits? It cannot be done. Um, so you're expecting it just to be that and Bright to be like, what do you mean the G Savior launched or whatever? Or what do you mean the, the core fighter has just launched? What do you mean the giant gun tank? What's happening? God. Um, but then actually he is in on it. Like, I think that is such a good 
way to sort of spruce up that side of the movie when you need the rest of the white base people to be coming for Amuro. It gives Bright a character arc. It's presented in a dramatic way that is really like interesting and with some good reveals. Then, as you say, it's with a very good, um, uh, like comic 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 routine of Bright just being like the gyroscope is broken. You got to get on that. What do you mean the speedometer is not operating? Oh, well, we're definitely not going to be able to get there. It's, yeah, and him doing that. Um, the whole bit is really effective and just uses the existing cast of the white base characters kind of like optimally for this movie that doesn't necessarily feature them super heavily yeah well there's it even pays attention to like he has a couple of encounters with that the guy on the screen the like random kind of beleaguered it's someone who is higher up in the ranks than bright but is also like very clearly beleaguered and put on and he's like at the beginning he's like go to alagranza go to this island and then later he's like uh you don't have to be on the island anymore you're gonna go to belfast and then finally he's getting bright is getting jerked around so much he clearly has fun putting the screws to this guy and that guy knows bright is putting the screws to him but he can't do anything about it it's very funny yeah yeah Captain Bright, love him. Sela has a couple of good moments. Not a huge character in this, but I, you know, always love seeing Sela. I particularly like how Yasuhiko draws Sela um, in the origin, and we get that here. She's awesome. Um, yeah. Megalon's performance as Sela is so fucking perfect. Like yeah. it's one of those where you know, because this is like Sela, Sela. This is his first Gundam era Sela, um, and it's like it's that's the one that to me is like eerie, have, like the way that she plays the character, where it's not necessarily an impression of the original voice actress. Um, but she so fully invokes the character, especially because we've seen her play the character like along that kind of de- developmental path or the course of the origin that like getting to hear it's like, yeah, you could just do a Sela TV show and just have Megami Han just play Sela. And well, I, I was going to say down for it. I was going to say, it's not obvious to me where you would ever do more stuff in kind of the era of first Gundam again, other than if they want to do a miniseries with Sela, I would watch the shit out of that. And just, there's a lot of open space to do it. Just have, like, during Zeta, what was Sela up to? I would watch I would watch that. They should do that. Yes. Just, it's like Obi-Wan Kenobi, but for Sela. That's, yeah, I Sela Mass. Give me the show. It's a six-part six miniseries, Sela Mass. Yep. It's, it could be great. Why not? <laughs> anyway. Um, no. Yeah, I'd be down for it. I love that. We get some good Kika Cats and Let's action. I'm not entirely sure why they bring Kika Cats and Let's on the gun parry to the island. That seems like a stupid and dangerous thing to do. But, you know, it turns out all the war orphans get to have fun together, and we get the big moment with the goat running into Kai. That's fucking great. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's in a narrative sense, it's there in order to sort of, like, have the contrast of remind you that, like, Amuro comes from a community like this in right, many ways. Yes. Um, and, and it's effective in that sense. But yes, there is there is a logical beat left there of like, but do they need to actually come on the mission to go get Amuro? Um, but yes, because they're cute. And that, that, that is yes. the answer. Man, and I just love, there is there is like during the climax of this movie, the big like, like Doan is fighting all the mobile suits and Amuro is squishing a dude with his Gundam foot. There is the scene where the goat gets away and goes and runs into Hayato and Kai, and they do the like very 70s anime thing where it's just a still frame of the goat like knocking into Kai and like kicking its ass, and the screen like shakes with the image. Yeah, I thought and that the was. The background is just like this like mess of kind of gradiented yes. colors of kind of reds and purples, and yeah, it's all very exaggerated. Yeah, that's very <laughs> funny. I had a lot of fun looking that at that in the storyboards because I didn't. I realized I never knew how do you indicate that in storyboards and the way he indicates it is he draws basically what the image is and then in the notes has this picture where he just draws one rectangle and then another rectangle at like a 
an angle and then draws an arrow like we're gonna do the thing and it's very funny you just see that on there and it's just you have the three frames of it hitting Hayato hitting Kai and then um, I think it hits Kai again (laughs) basically is what you get and they're very funny yeah, and and I think the best part of that is the build up to that moment of where the the goat has run away, um, and and the little uh, Studio Ghibli boy with the glasses who is he's just such a, a Studio Ghibli boy. It's so funny. Yeah, it's just little Ghibli boy. He's like because all the other characters look like Yoshikazu Yasiko characters, and then there's just Ghibli boy here too. Um, who yes. takes care of the Ghibli goat. Um, but the goat runs away. Um, and then Kai, you get this like shot from Kai's POV looking up from the ground and the coat is just sort of gesticulating madly in the air as it's like prancing towards Kai. He's like, what the fuck is this thing? Um, and it reminded me of, uh, in the manga and stuff with the origins, a little girl, Sayla, have her like really goofy cartoon horse that for yes. no reason just has this ridiculous fucking Looney Tunes horse. It's like a lot like that. It's like, because <laughs> yes, he could definitely has this very childish part to his humor that he indulges sometimes that I, I think is delightful. Um, and, and all the, the, the goat humor in the movie uh, worked for me a lot. Because we didn't get that in the OVA. They don't really adapt Sayla's yeah. crazy horse. And I was sad about that. There's also more stuff with her cat in the manga. We get a little uh-huh. bit of that in the OVA. Um, but I like that this this movie just dedicates a, a fair amount of screen time to goat antics. Uh, yes. And you've even got... You know, Takeyuki Hattori's music has this great little theme for the kids. It's the da 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 And it's like the theme. And I love that that just comes in in the climax when they're hanging around with the goat. Um, I love it. The Studio Ghibli boy, it's not just that he looks like a Studio Ghibli boy. He's voiced like a Studio Ghibli boy. It's just a kid doing a, like, not giving a performance really, but just a kid talking. Which is a very much like how Miyazaki will always direct kids in his movies, right? Um, yeah. It is very funny. There's just a studio Ghibli boy hanging around. Um, no, but I love it. I love I, I love the kids in this movie generally. I think it's a yes. very endearing group of war orphans. Uh, you know, Gundam. It's a series that has had many many war orphans. I'm surprised no one asked us to rank the war orphans. Let's like <laughs> find every war. It would be the entire cast of Iron Blooded Orphans. The three from Mobile Suit Gundam. We'd have to add in all the kids from this. Rank all the war orphans. Here, here's my ranking. Kika is number one. Kika's number that's, one. Yeah. That's Kika's number one. Everyone comes after Kika. Yeah. Kika's number one. Maybe, uh, yeah, I was going to say, maybe Mikazuki at number two. Very different <laughs> characters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, Kika, Kika should get a miniseries, too. I want to see what Kika yes. does as, as an adult. Um, no. You know, f- no, because she's going to, like, get killed in a crazy war. <laughs> I want, like, no, I want her as a little kid going in crazy, fun adventures. Don't don't show don't me do, okay. her up Kika. I don't want to see what happens to her. Nothing, One of her, nobody, nothing happens Nobody lives to an old age of the Universal Century You know, it's like yeah. It's killed in some crazy war Yeah, anyway, I, I, that's true Because if you go far enough then it's just her reacting To the death of cats and, you know yes. It's sad Anyway, love all of that stuff Speaking of the music, this, this movie The score is phenomenal I love yeah. what Hattori did for this It's a great soundtrack I... Uh, put the CD in my Blu-ray player so I could listen to it on my nice sound bar this morning and that's when I was just perusing the storyboard book and listening to the score uh, and I've seen the movie twice so I've heard this music a lot I think the you know the big moments where he brings in classic themes from Gundam are great and there's even a couple of I feel like deeper cuts in there beyond mm-hmm. just like 
you know, sort of the, there's the instrumental version of Tobey Gundam. There's like, you know, Gundam stands its ground, but there's also a theme. It's, it's, I forget the actual name of it, but it's M45 from the movies, which is the one that starts with the drums um, and gets bigger and bigger. That one's great. Uh, that's from movie three, I think, that they use in here uh, when everyone is getting ready to go. And it's the same scene where Bright is doing the comedy bit with the, with the captain. All of that's great. But I think the original music for the movie is great too. There's a lot of like fun instrumentation that kind of harkens back to original Gundam in that it just uses a lot of instruments. So there's shredding guitar, but there's also saxophone in places. There's some weird winds. It's just a very eclectic score that I think befits what the movie is. Yeah, yeah, I agree that I felt like all the original music fits in very nicely with the texture of the existing material that he sort of updates and, and does new versions of a lot of the classic music. Um, yeah, and I think like across the board, it's really great. Like it, it's a thing where I think, you know, he did a really good job on the origin of VAs, particularly with the main shore theme and the variations thereof. But I think this, particularly because it's a movie, so it gets to be more concentrated. I think this is an even more impressive soundtrack to me. Um, it's yeah, it's really great. No, I totally agree on that. And I do have a funny story for you, Sean. I know, you know, this composer's work because he did the Godzilla Millennium movies, most yes. of them. Um, <laughs> And when I, so as I said, the box set I have of this movie has the soundtrack CD, and you can get the soundtrack on Spotify already and everything, but I decided I wanted to rip the soundtrack, so I had it, you know, a nice rip of it in my library, and so I ripped it into iTunes, and then I told it to grab the album art, and it grabbed, for whatever reason, the, I had it titled as Cuckoo's Doan's Island, but it grabbed the album art for Godzilla 2000. <laughs> and it was very funny. I just had it in my library for a couple of minutes while I went and found better album art of Godzilla 2000, but for the Gundam Cougars Doan's Island soundtrack. Do you know? It's hey, Godzilla 2000. That soundtrack, it's not the best Gundam or Godzilla soundtrack, but it's not shabby. <laughs> no, but yes. Um, anyway, so funny anecdote there. Do you want to talk about the ending of this fucking movie? A couple yes. of ways to approach this. But... So the the moment that it repeats most verbatim, and obviously it, it's done much better in terms of animation and everything, is Amuro's final line to Doan and then throwing the mobile suit in the water. And the line as it's translated in the subtitles is, it's the smell of war lingering on your body that draws battle to you. Let me get rid of it for you, Doan. And I transcribe this in, in Japanese too, because I think it's such a great line. Maybe I can give it to you in the, in the chat, Sean, and you can do it for us. But... Um, I think it's a really striking just kind of use of verbiage. Uh, I love the phrase um, uh, Shimitsuku, which he uses there, which is they, they translate it as, you know, let me, it's the smell of war lingering on your body. The dictionary definition is to be indelibly stained or ingrained, to be dyed in deeply. I love that idea of let me get rid of this thing that is indelibly stained on you, Doan. Um, and I think... Furia's delivery of that line is fucking gorgeous. Yeah, so uh, you gave me the line, so I'll, I'll read the, the line in Japanese. It's Anato no ni shimitsuiteru senso no nioi ga tadakai o hiki oseru in jinai desho ka. Sori o kesasete kudasai. Doan. Yeah, so yeah, so yeah, as you're saying, like it means. So shimitsuiteru means like it has been dyed in. Um, so it is like into your body, like the the stench of war is dyed in there and that is drawing in and bringing uh battle to you um let me let me erase that for you um and by doing so he or in order to do so he picks up the zaku and, and i love how much time they spend on this moment which again is, is from the original episode 
him of the Gundam lifting Bazaku up like on two hands over its head, which when you have like in in a thing that uses the sense of scale through animation of mobile suits properly, which is not what the original Toon <laughs> animation no. was like, um, like the the weight and like the enormity of what is happening really comes across on screen. That's how immense and huge these things are, and him just throwing the Zaku over the edge into the water. Um, it's an incredible image that is like it, I don't think you realize how much of a difference you can make for like it translating that kind of image with everything that they do to it to just make it really come across as like this revelatory I think kind of thing for the the end of this movie there's a I actually wrote a note for myself on this for my dissertation because I might use this as a good example I mean it's a particularly poor piece of animation in the original episode but in the original episode the problem with that scene is that there's no weight to it at all like he basically picks up the Zaku like it's a fucking like ball and just chucks it and it's ridiculous and they don't really get the sense of scale because everything's weirdly tall in that episode and it just doesn't quite land and I think partly because they're using CGI for that moment and they're really able to like there's like parts falling off of it and all this yeah. stuff and the sound design we got to talk about the sound design in this movie too because it's fucking great but the sound design of like all the like creaking of it and then they do um this slow motion where he throws it and that's even it's, i love that it's in the storyboards it just says in katakana suro like slow this one down and he tosses it over uh and it's it's lovely and i think you know from that line of amuro to then doing it and the weight of it He's giving Doan this amazing gift he can't give himself. And I think the moment that maybe makes it for me is right before Amuro steps in and says this to Doan. Doan is talking to the kids and there's a couple cutaways to Amuro looking at them and thinking. And it's such good animation because you see Amuro realizing what he needs to do and what he can't do, which is just go join them, you know? Uh, and I think that's what makes, and I think that's what sells the line so much is all the added context, but also just that immediate moment of it's, you know, in the original episode, it's something Amuro just comes up and says, but I think that build up to it, it comes so deeply from inside Amuro. And I think Furia sells that in his performance of as much as he is one with the Gundam, there is also this desire for him to do that to the Gundam itself, you know? Yeah. And, and there's something about just using the line effectively verbatim from the original show is that like the dialogue of original Gundam was more stylized, you know, as like a 70s piece of anime than a lot of the dialogue in this movie. Um, and so like the way he says it, like it's so metaphorical and stylistic, you know, and Amuro doesn't speak that way anywhere else over the course of this film. And there's something about it where it just, it really it feels so much of him stepping fully into the role of the hero, which is what he is. And he becomes this more like traditionally classically heroic figure. Um, and, and also in a kind of self-sacrificial, self-sacrificial way, but self-sacrificial in a kind of counterintuitive way, right? Where he is, he is sacrifice. He is committing self-sacrifice by not sacrificing himself. If that makes sense. Because he's not getting rid of his own Gundam. He's not getting rid of anything that he has. He's getting rid of the thing that Doan has. But that means that Amuro must continue this fight. Um, and that is what is heroic about it. Um, and yeah, it's just, it is a really powerful moment. Because you feel how much the whole movie feels designed to bring Amuro and the characters and the whole world to the point where you can give this line and do this thing and have it have the weight that it needs to have 
um, instead of like the kind of weightlessness, both literally and metaphorically, that it had in the original episode. Yeah. It's a stunning moment. And then the actual ending of the movie is the white base flyover of the island to the the tune of uh, Hiroko Moriguchi's new song for Gundam, Ubu Goe, yeah. which you know I put on my top 40. I, it's one of the best Gundam songs ever written and recorded. It's utterly phenomenal. And there is something about that imagery of the, of the white base flying over and saying goodbye and this little bit of good it's concretely left in the world under it you know and off to face the rest of its adventures there's something about that that just felt like oh this is everyone involved kind of saying goodbye to Gundam for now yeah and, it, and yeah and in, in, in the one of the interviews that you shared with me like this is a thing that just because he, he says is that like they asked him the question was about the ending and he said specifically like that that was one of the first things he had in his head was this hat like the last thing has to be the white base flying over the island and Amr looking at it wistfully um and that's like that he knew that that yeah. was going to be the last image of the movie immediately um and and you feel it that it is the perfect end point because it contains everything of the movie you know um and and of Amro's journey and how he has like learned and grown but he still has his whole adventure like the rest of Gundam still lies ahead of him you know yeah it's stunning and and that moment you talked about of Amuro looking back wistfully that's the other thing that makes it um and it's it's there you know like I said the remarkable thing about looking at Yasuhiko's storyboards is how much of the final drawing of the characters is just so there in the boards themselves of like he gets the expression so completely and you just you look at him he's in his uniform which he isn't in for most of the movie and he's looking out at you know the island and it's this look on his face that is kind of hard to read but says a lot of different things um and it's you know it's beautiful and how about that fucking song sean yeah yeah ubugoe is amazing so like the the title of the song it means it's like the first cry of a right. baby after it's been born um and and that's very much what like the lyrics are kind of hard to translate yes. <laughs> poetically right <laughs> yeah it's, it's one of those things where it's just like it's the thing that like a word that doesn't we don't have a word for that in in english so it's like you can't you can't translate the title directly um but yes no like i mean it's hiroko Moriguchi singing it, her voice is just so incredible um and yeah this song is amazing in particular the moment it's like about like 90 seconds or about 100 seconds into the song where the drums and the bass kick in is just like it is a perfect moment of music um yes. it's like you have because it starts much more slower and kind of contemplative and very much with piano and accentuating uh Hiroko Moriguchi's vocals um and then when like the rest of the band comes in um is when you're just like oh my god this because like, it's not just a great song it's a great groove you know it's got yeah. that kind of it got a little bit of funky quality to the way it's put together which I think is intentional to get some of that first Gundam feel to it um it's also very stylistically similar to how uh, the her Gundam song cover songs are are put together. You know, there's yeah. not much sort of like electronic elements to it or anything. It feels like it is a live band effectively playing the song, um, and there's just a very organic quality of the music that you get from that. Very sparse, focused, very live feeling instrumentation um, that this is a perfect example of. Yeah, it's one of my favorite. You know, of those big kind of rock ballads that she's done for Gundam. 
I adore it. I've listened to it many times since I saw the movie. Uh, and I even... More money I've spent on this fucking movie. I did get the CD single from Japan. And I got it specifically... Like, on its, I don't go around buying up a lot of CD sing singles. But I got it because I couldn't find a, a torrent of it. And it comes with... It's the song and then two more Gundam song covers she hasn't released elsewhere. And it's her covers of Now Is Good Night, which is the insert song you get at several points in First Gundam, including that's what plays in the show version when Lala dies. Yeah. Um, and then also of Forever Amaro, the end credits song. And I shared those with you. Have you listened to those covers yet, Sean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ, they're good. <laughs> it's really good. She, she, she should make a Gundam song covers for. <laughs> she should it's, just it's never like stop. They're all amazing. Yeah. Like, honestly, her version of Now is Good Night is so good, I want to, like, edit it into First Gundam. Like, it's uh -huh. just, it's a better version of that song, you know? Yeah, because yeah, there have been a couple of songs with, like, some of the deeper cuts that really has that quality of, like, this is, like, a decent song in the original, and now you've turned it into, like, an amazing song. Like, Silver yes. Dress is a lot like that from Zeta Gundam. Yeah, there's yeah. just some of those where you're, like, yeah. goddamn, her and, like, the other musicians that she works with are so good um, it's amazing. Yeah, that one. Uh, and then the cover of Forever Amaro is a big choral cover, kind of like the one of yeah, Beginning she did. Yeah, with Voja. Um, and it, it's so fun. It's such a good one. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And then also that one has another Yasuhiko original illustration, which made me want to get it because it's just a beautiful drawing of the uh, the white base flying over the lighthouse and a very wistful looking Amaro looking down at them. So anyway... Um, that was fun to have as well. There's a, It also had a Blu-ray with it that has the music video for Ubugoe, which you can see on YouTube. It's actually a pretty cool music video. And a like 40-minute making-of documentary, which I have not watched in full, but it's kind of fun because it's Moriguchi like, walking into these cool rooms and there's a part they did on like a cliff outside to kind of like evoke the movie. Um, and it's just fun. Yeah, because Shihiroko Moriguchi has been, like, hosted a bunch of, like, music-focused TV shows and stuff like that in Japan. So she's just a very fun person also to watch and, like, yes. see interviews of and stuff just because she's, like, developed a really good on-camera kind of, like, personality yeah. and stuff. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, and, and honestly, I when I saw this movie the first time, Sean, I had missed the news that Moriguchi had a song in it somehow. And so you get to the end and I realize it's her and it's it's a new Moriguchi song. And it's like, what a perfect cherry on top of this movie that it's mm -hmm. another piece of first Gundam with Toru Furia as Amuro. It's Yoshikazu Yasuhiko doing the whole thing. It's all of these, like, just accumulating all these things I love and hold dear in Gundam and in, you know, just life. And then you top it off with a new Moriguchi original Gundam song. This, it's, I feel like I'm being spoiled by this movie, Sean. Yeah, and it's just, it's really nice to get this, you know, I like it when the movies end with an original song composed specifically for the movie rather yes. than like what you sometimes will get. And you can get really good songs and it can be used really well still, but oftentimes you will, you know, have someone has signed the new single of some hot J-Rock band or something like that, which can right. be cool. Um, but I always prefer if you can build something that's really thematically in tune with the movie because it was written specifically for the film. Um, you know, like obviously, I think probably the most, the biggest example of that recently is Homer at the end of the Kimetsu Yaiba movie. Um, but this has that similar quality of where it, the tone of it, the style of it, the lyrics, all of it is like very reflective of what the movie is doing. It's used very effectively as that lead into the end credits because it's, you know, it starts before the credits kick in. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah. It's a, like a, a good example of the counter of that is like Dragon Ball has had four movies in this last decade. 
and they've done that thing where like none of them have had particularly great songs at the end because it's some of them are good but it's just kind of you get a hot new j-rock artist in and what i've always wanted is like why haven't they had hironobu kageyanga come back and do a cool new dragon ball song you know yeah and that would be like my dream for one of these and we haven't gotten that but we did get it here for for gundam with with moriguchi coming back so all around great movie and speaking of the music i do just also want to say I don't know what has happened over at Sunrise with their sound design, but it is off the fucking charts good in this movie and in Hathaway last year. Uh, yeah. And, like, a clear jump up. Because, like, I recently rewatched uh, Narrative Gundam 2, which would be the last movie before Hathaway. That's not that old. That's, like, 2019 or something, 2018. Good sound design. It's fine. But there's something that happened, like, after Iron Blood Orphans and Bill Divers and Narrative. Hathaway and this movie... I listened to Cuckoo's Doe and I've seen it twice now and I watch it once with my nice headphones and I watch it once with my soundbar and it just gave both of them such a workout. It's th these Both of these movies, they mix natively in Dolby Atmos so maybe it's just more has had to go into it for that but I think Hathaway even more so than this one because Hathaway just has more going on in the mix but like this one too just has a just there's so much directionality to yeah. it the sound effects are so meaty and crunchy like all the stuff in the cockpit sounds so good um the mixing of the vocals and the music it's just a a plus sound design for this movie uh and same yeah. as hathaway last year yeah i 100 agree it's it's because it gives you like a lot of really good dynamic range to all the sound effects and the music and all of that but then also it does like the most important thing is finding a way to mix all of that really well and have it be very factful, but then also not have it step on top of the dialogue. Um, like the dialogue is always very crisp. It's always very easy to understand. Um, it's, it's a thing you're never like kind of struggling to hear, which is that kind of like modern Hollywood issue you get sometimes. Um, and yeah, it's, it is, I'm with you 100%. Not quite as impressive as the Hathaway one, mostly because like the project doesn't demand it to be at what Hathaway's doing. Um, but it is like amongst the best sound mixing I've heard uh, in like a modern movie. It actually makes me really curious for Witch from Mercury, which is a TV project, so it won't be as ambitious on the sound. It'll be stereo. It won't be surround. Um, anime is... I've never heard of a TV anime mixed in surround. Um, but just there's something about how Sunrise has like made this leap since they last made a TV show that I'm really curious if we get even more there makes me excited for Hathaway 2 and whatever else is coming it's it's just good good stuff like honestly this disc and Hathaway would be like two of my go-tos to show off a sound system they're so good mm -hmm. yeah yeah Hathaway 100% in particular is that like check it check out my rig kind of movie yes like, look how awesome my screen is look at how yep. like good my sound system is it is one of those where you just, like you put it in when you bought a new piece of kit and you want to like see how good it is now like hathaway is absolutely that kind of movie yeah i have the the blu-ray of hathaway and i think that would be like my maybe go-to blu-ray demo disc for yeah. 4k i would do something else but like as a standard blu-ray that uh the kimetsu no yaiba blu-ray did uh, of the movie mugen train was that way as well mm -hmm. for obvious reasons but anyway Good stuff. Gundam is awesome. Uh, I, lo I loved this movie, Sean. Yes. Uh, one thing that just popped into my head, because I, I had it in my head I wanted to mention because I found it very funny. This is not particularly incidental with this movie. But I found it absolutely hilarious that in Bright's office, he has on his fucking wall a, like, 
an image of the white base from the original show leaving Jabro with the pelicans flying next to it. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> I didn't like notice sunset. that. That's great. Yeah, it's like it's framed on his wall, and it's like the when it, it's the first time it cuts into his office after they go on the mission, and it's when Mirai comes in and sort of admonishes him a bit for how strict he was. That with the cut there, the shot is like it's not like zoomed in on that image, but that image is in the middle of the wall, and I literally stopped the movie and like. Wait a minute, is that the fucking white base leaving Jaffro? It's like, it is. Who took that picture? How did he get that picture? Because in this continuity, they would have left a Jabra at this point, so this has happened. And I love the idea that Bright, like, at Jabro hired some guy to, like, go stand on that cliff over there with the camera. Where, look, there's a pack of, like, flamingos right here. We're gonna, we're gonna fly out at sunset. You gotta take the picture and email it to me. It's gonna be fucking great. I'm gonna get it on my wall. Oh, it's going to be amazing. I like the idea. Maybe Bright had a friend back at Jabra who just took the picture and was like, and then texted it to him. Like, Bright, yeah. you got to see this amazing picture of you guys. And he's like, great. Job John, get over here. You got to laminate this for me. <laughs> no, that's that's actually why they stopped in Dublin was to get yes. the, was to get it framed. Uh, it's <laughs> like they had nothing to do with any military operation. You know, it's just like, look, I know a guy. He can do it real cheap, very quick. We're going to stop off in Dublin. I just got to get this framed on my wall. It's, it's just, it's perfect. Clearly, I think that has to be the plot of the next Gundam movie is how Bright got that picture because that yes. is brain-breaking. I noticed in his office he has his like commission on the wall and you uh -huh. can see, because it's very clear, the signature of Johan Ibrahim Revel they wrote out in yes. full and I loved that. I like the idea that General Revel signs his full fucking name. Makes uh -huh. sense to me, yeah. <laughs> anyway, this movie's great. I'm... Uh, you know, I'm so excited to talk about all sorts of other anime with you, Sean. And, of course, we're going to talk about Gundam again in the not-too-distant future. But there is a little bit of uh, sadness in me at, at this kind of being the end of the road with Gundam for, for the present moment. Yes. Well, before we wrap this up, Jonathan, I just had the idea. I'm going to link it for you in the chat so you can bring it up. We just did our third anniversary where we ranked all of the Gundams. Okay, yeah. And that is while this movie is coming out. We gotta, we gotta update it. We gotta officially update the rankings, um, and figure out where does Mobile Suit Gundam Cuckoo's Doan's Island fit now in our official weekly Suit Gundam rankings, the the ranking of Gundam of Gundams, um, <laughs> or else it will bother me forever if it is not on this list. No, I think you're right. I actually was going to do this. I had forgotten about this, so I'm glad you remembered. I I wanted to do this today. Um, I'm looking at it now. My initial impulse is I would put it at number 13 where Gundam Seed is right now and I have it right under Hathaway's Flash. Maybe that's too high. That's my initial instinct. It's very funny because my initial instinct was to put it right below Gundam Seed and right above Unicorn Gundam. Um, I'd be fine with that. I would put yeah. it above the origin. I actually think this is better than the origin. Yes, uh, I agree. A, yeah. Not, they're hard to compare. The origin is six movies. This is one movie, but you know what I'm, yeah. Yes. Because, I mean, you know, for reference for people, this is out of our, it will now be a 34 item list. But out of the 34 item list, this would be our number 14 um, in Gundam Origin would then become number 16. So they're, they'd be both ranked very high. Yeah. I think, I, th I think that's a good spot for it. Okay. So right under Gundam Seed? Yeah. All right. I'm going to put it there. All right, Sean, do you want to, as our final bit of Weekly Suit Gundam for the moment, list for everyone our final top 34, the complete Gundam rankings? Yes, yeah, so this is for the end of the original era of Weekly Suit Gundam before it becomes a sort of sister show or whatever to Japanimation Station. This is, as of now, um, the official Weekly Suit Gundam rankings of rankings. Our number 34 
is G Savior. Our number 33 is Gundam Build Divers. Our number 32 is the original MS Igloo. Our number 31 is Mobile Suit Gundam Seed Destiny. Our number 30 is Gundam Twilight Axis. Our number 29 is New Mobile Report Gundam Wing. Our number 28 is Gundam Build Fighters Try. Number 27 is Gundam 0083 uh, Stardust Memory. Our number 26 is the Zeta Gundam Movie Trilogy, The New Translation. Number 25 is Mobile Suit Gundam Thunderbolt. Number 24 is Mobile Suit Gundam MS Igloo 2. Number 23 is the movie Narrative Gundam. Number 22 is Mobile Fighter G Gundam. Number 21, After War Gundam X. Number 20 is Gundam Build Divers Re-Rise. Number 19 is Mobile Suit Gundam Age. Number 18 is Mobile Suit Gundam F91. Number 17 is Mobile Suit Gundam The 08th MS Team. Number 16 is Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, the OVA series. Number 15 is Mobile Suit Gundam Unicorn, also an OVA our, series. Yeah. And our, our number 14, the brand new edition, is Mobile Suit Gundam Kukuru's Doan's Island. It's a little movie that could... This is the movie? This is not episode 15 of the show. <laughs> this is the movie Kukuru's Doan's Island. Yeah, we're going to rank all the episodes individually later. Uh, no, Number 13 is Mobile Suit Gundam Seed. Number 12 is Mobile Suit Gundam Hathaway's Flash. Number 11 is Mobile Suit Victory Gundam. Number 10 is Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta. Number 9 is Gundam 0080 War in the Pocket. Number 8 is Mobile Suit Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans. Number 7 is Gundam Build Fighters. Number 6 is Mobile Suit Gundam Double O. Number 5 is Gundam Reconquista in G. Number 4 is Mobile Suit Gundam Shars Counterattack. Number 3 is Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam. Our number 2 is Turn A Gundam called turn a gundam and our number one eternally in our hearts mobile suit gundam kimi wa ikinobiru koto ga dekiru ka 